Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Director's Club. Oh, wait. No, 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 no. Hold on. Sorry. I have a lot of weird things here. Hold on. Do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, re, do. Hey, everybody. This is Patrick. Patrick Rapol, co-host of the Director's Club podcast. Uh, I'm here to sort of offer an explanation for why this episode is so late. Um... Uh, and also just to sort of address uh, sort of what's going on at Director's Club recently. Um, some big changes are afoot, and they're changes that I'm excited about, you know? Change is something I can believe in. Hope. Change. Um, obey. Uh, a rat holding a M16. Now I'm just listing street art. Um, okay, so anyway, first things first. This episode is very late because I'm a lazy asshole. You know, I had a lazy asshole month, had some personal stuff sort of to work through, and it was very hard to uh, focus on anything, let alone editing a podcast. Um, but uh, I did record this podcast you're about to listen to about Alfonso Curon. Yeah, actually, actually, it's Caron, but I pronounce it Caron throughout the episode, um, I guess because I'm a Muslim. I don't know. Or, or I'm just dumb. I, I think I'm a, just a dumb guy. I think that's that's in general been a good theme on the Director's Club podcast. I'm a dumb guy. It's, that's the director's club drinking game. You take a you take a shot every time uh, I mispronounce someone's name. That's how you die. It's not a good drinking game. That's any drinking game where you die. Bad drinking game. That's that's how I feel about it. But anyway, I recorded this with our good friend Brian Tallarico about a month ago, um, and I just I've only now gotten around to editing it and putting it together and recording the music and doing all the stuff, the little touches, you know, that make this such an amazing podcast. You know what I'm talking about? It's just one of the best. I don't know why you're listening to those film junk assholes. No, <laughs> I, I promise I'm joking. Film junk is, it, it's a much better podcast than this one. Um, but anyway, so that's why this episode is late. Um, on the second bit, um, Jim Laskowski, my co-host, who's sadly not here with me right now to sort of announce it, is moving. Uh, he has education opportunities elsewhere, and he's actually moving from the city of Chicago. So it's going to be about – we're probably going to go on like a month or two hiatus um, as he's moving and, you know, sort of getting readjusted and – the podcast will not be the same as it was before. We haven't decided if we're going to – what we haven't decided what we're going to do. If we're going to change the lineup, if we're going to change how we do things, if we're just going to you know, Skype to each other. We haven't decided. But um, change is afoot. But like I said, change is a good thing. A rat holding an M16. Um, and then whatever Mr. Brain – what did Mr. – I love Exit to the Gift Shop so much. I cannot remember a goddamn – well, I guess that's the point of the movie. I guess the point of Exit the Gift Shop is that Mr. Brainwash commoditized, commoditized everything and you can't remember – none of his art is memorable. Right? Like what you remember is Banksy putting the Abu Ghraib dummy you know, by the roller coaster. But you don't remember uh, whatever the fuck Mr. Brainwash did. Oh, cool guy go. Good movie. You should see Exit to the Gift Shop. Yeah, here's a little, here's a little tip. Only one of the most critically acclaimed documentaries of the decade. You should check that out. Anyway, so Director's Club is going to go on a bit of a hiatus. Um, our schedule is going to be shifted around, obviously. Um, we might bring in some guest hosts. We might, you know, uh, we might try to just Skype in with each other. We haven't decided yet. But needless to say, Director's Club's not going anywhere. Um, we sure as hell aren't because... 
uh, I already paid Gabe Powers for like five more articles. So I'll be damned if that money, you know, goes to no. I I I demand my content. I'll keep this thing going as long as I can, just so Gabe Powers can keep doing those Crips and Bloods articles that he does on our blog. Have you looked at our blog, DirectorsClubPodcast.com? You really should. It's a good blog. It's been not a lot of traffic lately. Like I said, I've been going through whatever lazy asshole month. Um, but in general, it's a really good blog, and some amazing people write for it, namely me and Gabe Powers and Jim Leskowski. You know, amazing people that you already know and love. Anyway. I just thought I would uh, put this all out there for you. And now here is the Alfonso Caron, or as I say it in the podcast, because I'm an asshole, Caron episode. Podcast. I'm Patrick Rapole. Uh, Jim is on sabbatical, uh, but uh, with me is a uh, very special guest, Brian Tallarico. Hey. Now, of course, you know uh, Brian from um, the Park Chan Wook episode. You know him from writing uh, for, uh, oh, what site do you write for? HollywoodChicago.com, About.com. I'm on Fearnet every once in a while. I'm on Film Threat every once in a while. I've been growing since I was last here. So you can find me anywhere. And I'm actually going to launch BrianTellerico.com soon, so you'll be able to just have one portal to find all my stuff. There you I'm go. I'm on WGN every weekend, too. Yeah. yeah. Radio, internet, everything. <laughs> it's fantastic. Fantastic. Um, and today we're going to be talking about Alfonso Cuaron. Yep. Uh, which is, it's, it's a director I'm very excited about. He's probably, I would say, like one of the first uh, sort of art film directors I got into, like in high school. Because, I mean, his films, despite, you know, being very great, you know, they're, they're also just very accessible. Oh, yeah. So, you know, seeing like Ichu Mama Tambien as, as like a 17-year-old, it's just, oh, <laughs> it's, it's just I'm like, sure. oh, shit. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> uh, like, yeah, it was just, it's just so, it, it just so directly ties into just like, oh, like I am that character. Like well, the yeah. emotions you're feeling at that point. And it's, it's accessible film. I mean, we'll get into it, I'm sure, that also plays around with filmmaking and style. And so while he's telling a very accessible story, he's doing really interesting things within that. Yeah. And I think so that probably helped your love of film. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. Itumama Tembien and then like Children of Men came yeah. right when I started to get sort of serious and that was just another. So, and those are going to be the two films that we uh, talk about. Sorry, fans of uh, Little Princess. We might touch on She's that. She's good. I, I like Little I, Princess. I like that. I like that. I actually, that was a movie I did, I was... That was one of those movies where it's like, it was a girl movie. Yeah, it's <laughs> so, good. And, I, and I'm like, I don't know if I'm supposed to like, but I, I kind of dug it. I kind of dug the segments where she's telling the story. Yeah, and, it's a well-made movie. Great yeah. Expectations is the only misfire. In my is opinion. he? I don't is like it? Great Expectations at all. Yeah, that, I didn't. I have not seen that one. Ooh, it's a mess. Um, but, um, so yeah, I don't think we have any business to take care of. I guess I could say up front, uh, you leave us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find our podcast on iTunes. So uh, rate and review us there. That, that helps us out. And... Um, 
Also, if you haven't heard the Friday Thirteenth commentary I do with my mom, you should because I really, I really enjoy doing that, and I think everyone should hear it because it's amazing. <laughs> um, so, uh, other than that, I guess we're just going to get into uh, what we watched this week. random assortment of craziness mm-hmm. i mean i saw after earth because i had to see that for a review for a film and then i do blu-ray too so i occasionally just have really weird assortments of things like the burning from 1981 because it just came out on blu-ray and parker the new jason statham movie and this awful piece of cgi animated junk called escape from planet earth that came out a few months ago when you do what i do i mean i have to watch one or two movies a day pretty yeah. much, and it's just a lot of random stuff after earth is horrible in case anyone's wondering it's a, it's a really, Shyamalan movie. So. Yeah, it's it's a Smith family movie, um, and it's just it's really. Horrible. I have not seen uh, Karate Kid, so I or I, mean, I guess I haven't seen Pursuit of Happiness. They're both into. He's right? okay in both of those. He's awful here. Oh yeah, really awful because his dad tried to turn him into kind of an action star, sort of before his voice broke, and uh, no, with uh, and with a really bad accent and no charisma and all kinds of Scientology laden. Danger is real. Fear is a choice. Kind of nonsense. Speak. Uh, I guess. I guess. What I'd be more interested in is just what's the last role that Will Smith did that wasn't a Men in Black like sleepwalking through that character. Like before this, what was it? What's the last good Will Smith movie? Somebody asked me that on the way out, and I was like, you know, it's been a long time. Like yeah. I'm not even sure that. I think it was he literally did seven pounds and then did men in black three, right? There was nothing in between. Oh, that was, that's a big break then. If that's true, seven pounds is awful. Yeah. Uh, I didn't like men in black three. Hancock has some decent ideas, but doesn't work ultimately. Like in the point is he hasn't been in a good movie in quite some time, but this one is a new level of stink for Mr. Smith and the family. Um, it's just, it's bad all around bad effects, bad design. I get, I very rarely go as low as like a one star D and that's where I ended up on this. Oh really? Yeah. It's horrendous. Um, but on the other hand, before midnight opened here in Chicago on Friday, and that's my favorite movie of the year. Oh, yeah. So everyone should go see. I've not seen any of those oh, you, uh, films. You must do that. Yeah, this you is it's, it, it, it's basically the, the the seven up of fictional mm-hmm. films. Is that is it that is, it? and that's what it's going to be because I'm everyone keeps calling it a trilogy, and I go no 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 no. Yeah, they're going to do it again, uh, and I hope they do. They really, I cannot say enough about Before Midnight. I think it's brilliant. No, they, I love they, it. The concept of the films is, is these two characters spend a, like a day together. Uh, the second one is almost completely real time. The first and third are not quite. They're okay. close. Uh, I mean, they're one day. Right. They're, they're over about 12-hour periods. Uh, but the second film, I think, is real time. Okay. Most of it is. Because um, he's got a short amount of time before he has to catch his plane. Um, yeah, they just really get... I said in something I wrote about it, the first movie is really like 
young love. You're in your 20s. That whole like, oh, my God, anything can happen on a European train. I'm mm-hmm. going to find this girl. She's going to get off with me. Yeah. And anything. Can, and that, that feeling you have in your 20s that anything can happen. The second film, things are a little more... I'm getting older. I'm in my 30s. Maybe I need... Because they're not... And I don't want to spoil anything, but they're not together at the end of the first film. Yeah. He goes back and meets her again at this in the second film. And there's that sense we have in our 30s like, oh, my God, I got to grab something. Like, more like... Maybe if I don't take this chance now, I'm not going to get another chance. That's what Linklater and them really capture in the second film. And then the third film, to me, is, and I don't want to spoil my age or anything, but these films almost, they're, I'm almost exactly the same age as mm-hmm. Ethan and Julie. And I'm in a similar place in my life. With a, They have kids and a family. And the idea that Linklater and them are capturing love, both in its problems and its repercussions, and in the potential for the future they do that better than any romantic drama I think I've ever seen. Really? The idea that you, the way married people can fight and love each other and hate each other in the same moment, as cliched as that sounds, I think because they know these characters so well and they feel so real, we believe it. Not to spoil anything, but the, a large chunk of Before Midnight is a fight. It's a fight about decisions that were made in the past, and even in their relationship. And Linkletter and them are getting at the idea that we see these romantic gestures in film And they have ripple effects. Everything has a ripple effect. Uh, He gets off the train with her. What if he had done something else instead? It's that kind of film Mm -hmm. that asks these questions about even these grand romantic gestures. And once again, I'm going to assume most of your listeners have seen the films. The second film ends with a grand romantic gesture that has, in most movies, oh, that would just be the end and isn't it beautiful? But this film dissects the repercussions of that grand romantic gesture in that he had a wife and kid at the time. Uh, so so things things happen. Even in our greatest moments, even in our happiest moments, there are things that happen that feed and impact relationships. I mean, I'm going to talk about Before Midnight a lot this year because it's... I, I, I would be surprised if I see a better film. And uh, they, do they all take place in Europe or...? Uh, yeah, they do. Um, this one's in Greece. But they're two American characters? No, she's French. Okay, Julie Delphi is French. Yeah, okay. yeah Celine. Um, he's American, Jesse. Oh, I see. Uh, traveling the first time, going back to find her. And then this one, they're on a vacation in Greece, the family vacation. That's interesting. So uh, is, is this, does it, but it's, it, it's all, it's not all in the same country every. No, no. Do, do, does the settings reflect? Uh, I believe the Grecian setting does, especially, yeah. uh, I, I, once again, I don't want to get, I don't know if I want to get too deep into, maybe I'm reading more into it than is there. But at the beginning, there's an event, an inciting event. Jesse says goodbye to his kid, Hank, at the very beginning of the film. Because Hank has been with them in Greece for the summer, hanging out. But he's got to go back to his mom. And this shakes Jesse up a little bit. Like, oh, I'm not going to see my son again for a few months. Maybe I want to go live closer to him. Maybe we should move. They've lived in Europe for a long time. Maybe we should move. And they're driving back through ruins and talking about history. Yeah. And I'm the kind of person who goes, that's not an accident. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> probably I, not. That doesn't sound like you're reading too much <laughs> into it. That sounds yeah. like... And they're talking about, like, well, should we go wake the kids and go see the ruins? Should we really dissect our history yeah. is the question there. Like, and maybe it's, maybe it's just a that's setting. That's really interesting. Uh, what's, yeah. your, what's your prediction? Fourth movie. Uh, oh, <laughs> Fourth... What's it called? Or... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's running out of time. He's running out of titles. After Twilight? or uh, I, I don't know. Before Dawn. Before Dawn? Before Dawn. That sounds like an action movie. That's true. That'd be a really interesting (laughs) twist. That's Sylvester Stallone's sequel. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Yeah, I don't... I'm sure they'll do it again in nine years. I'd be surprised if they didn't. Are these... 
Are these like emotionally? Because I, I like I said, I haven't seen any of them, but I'm certainly interested in seeing this. And obviously, I should see the first two you before should. I see yeah, yeah. this. Um, are they like very emotionally draining movies where it wouldn't be a good idea to like watch them all in one week? Or no, no, definitely not the first two. The first two aren't emotionally draining at all. Okay, they're more flirtatious. Okay, uh, they're more. There's an intellectual flirtation romance game something being played. Something about the scenarios reminded me of something. It sounded almost like a, like a Cassavetes kind of a thing. Uh, so, in uh, their low budget sense and in their... Yeah, I see what you mean, but so it's I, much but more I, light than that. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not going to drain you. The no. third film might drain you. <laughs> well, that's... But, then yeah, that, that but it's be, rewarding. Yeah. So. Awesome. Yeah, no, I love that movie. Uh, Stories We Tell is out now, and I love that movie too. So if people are listening yeah, Jim to this currently... Yeah, Jim has uh, raved about yeah. that movie. I think on the... The last episode on the David Lynch Very episode. Very cool. So. Oh, you guys did Lynch? Lynch. Yeah. I love Lynch. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's okay. I'll, I'll have to listen to it. Yeah. Who'd uh, you have in? Uh, we had... Uh, um, oh, I, no, I'm a horrible oh, okay. host. because That's I, all right. Uh, we had Zach Batante from uh, a podcast called Film Jive. And okay. Then, uh, a friend of Jim's. <laughs> I apologize. Nat Amaral. Okay. Nat Amaral. Um, Very cool. There we go. So, so we're, yeah. do, we're doing directors who haven't worked in too dang long. Yeah, Lynch and Cuaron been forever. Well, Cuaron's got a new one coming out. He's got a new movie and a new TV show. So yeah, Lynch. I don't know what he's doing. No one ever knows. Inland Empire, Inland Empire came out like no one knew it existed, and it came out like three months later. So yeah. he could be making a movie right now. For That's all true. We know. And he keeps talking about Twin Peaks. I'm sure you guys hit on that. He talked about it again the other day. Did he? Yeah. What's he like, talking about like we're in, in some form. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I like. That <laughs> I don't know either. if I like it either. I. I, I don't like I like already the Twin Peaks that exists. I don't like half of it. <laughs> half of it. The movie I've got some huge problems with, but yet I still kind of like it. I, I don't know. As soon as they solved the, the they solved the murder, uh, like I'm not I'm not going to spoil everything. But like and it's then, been 50, twenty years. You're allowed to spoil it. Yeah, 20 years. but uh, as soon as they solve the murder, and then they just go into all these ridiculous subplots yeah. that are really boring. And then I really hated the, like the last. Episode. I just thought I felt the whole thing. Like what? What's really and yeah, we should talk about Twin Peaks again. Sorry, after Daylight. But what's really effective about Twin Peaks to me is that all of that is just off in the distance. There's always something like it's a really effective small town soap opera kind of a thing. But there's also just this weird darkness and surreality, just like just just beyond the shadows or whatever. In everything Lynch has ever made. Yeah, but the the thing is, once it becomes more literal and they yeah. actually start exploring and explaining the mythology. It's like the worst possible choice. For oh, them. I agree. And that's why the movie doesn't work too. Yeah. There's way too much definition in the movie. Laura's background and the scenes with Laura don't really work, but, but even here's my thing, even bad Lynch, I find fascinating. We yeah. should probably move on, but yeah, no, no, for sure. that's why I love Lynch because even this movies that I would admit are crap. I still love watching. Is the burning, uh, oh, worth watching? Burn. Yeah. Uh, outside of Tom Savini's, uh, work. Tom Savini's work actually isn't that great because he got no. rushed. He, he, he even talks about it on one of the featurettes or some interview I read where he had very little time to do it. So a lot of the makeup work isn't that great. Oh. But uh, I will say this. It's a much darker film than a lot of those slasher movies. A lot, yeah. a lot of those slasher movies were pretty tongue-in-cheek. Right. Like there was no gore. I mean this movie, there's some kill scenes that are like really kind of dark. Like almost yellow. Mm-hmm. Like it kind of verges on that uh, – Argento, yeah, that kind of like whoa, yeah, <laughs> yeah he just decapitated that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a little more vicious than right. cartoonish. Yeah, exactly. Really dark. The, the Burning is actually a movie I purposely have not watched just so I have like one classic slasher movie no, I haven't seen. Like, I, it's not I'm bad. Saving it. No, it's worth watching. Slasher movies are one of my favorite. Uh, slash, it's one of my favorite, you know, subgenres of horror. But it's just 
I, uh, there's, there's not a ton of really quality ones. No, so. there's not. And they admitted that this is pretty much known that it was made for to capitalize on the Friday the 13th yeah, trend. Right. So it comes from that. But I would recommend it. I, it's got a, a much darker tone than I was than I remembered. I had seen it like 30 years ago on VHS. It just came out on Blu-ray. I don't know if you know Scream Factory. They're releasing all these old oh, horror yeah. movies. Oh, yeah. They, they live, Halloween yeah. 3. Yep. They just did Burning. And it's really good. Great yeah. transfer. Everything I know about them is from friends on Facebook posting yeah. uh, the amazing cover art and all oh, these Blu-rays. Dude. <laughs> the hand-painted. Dude. I just, got, I, I just got Life Force and The Howling, and they're both beautiful. They come out in a few weeks. Yeah. Like, yeah. something that is definitely define modern home video is just, like, it's it just, the art just keeps getting shittier and more yeah. generic. And then, so... The Screen Factory thank, stuff is just thank, insane. Thank God for them and Criterion. Yeah, I mean, yeah, really. Those are, two, those are the two people who really <laughs> take it uh, seriously. Who are who don't need just like floating heads. Oscilloscope does some good stuff. They they try to experiment with some of their covers and their packages. As long as we're talking about it, but you're right, most of them are just mm-hmm. photoshopped heads on top of each yeah. other. Yeah. It's awful. It's real bad. Okay, um, we we totally went tangential there for a little bit. That's yeah, fine. It's only two of us. <laughs> it's going to end up being a shorter podcast anyway, so we can sure. afford to. I like it. Uh, going to, is there anything else you wanted to? Uh, no, not really. I'm trying to think what else I've seen lately. I'm last week was like I said a really weird random week. Okay, can I ask you uh, two questions real quick? Sure. Did you like Fast Five? I did. How do you feel about the new Fast and the Furious? I movie? liked it as well. Okay. Uh, not quite as much because it's a little longer and takes itself more seriously. Mm-hmm. And these movies should be lean and streamlined and yeah. totally dumb. Not not that Fast Five is particularly <laughs> No, lean. it's not. But it's like 20 minutes and that's a big difference yeah, in, this, that's true. in this era. 130 to 110, mm-hmm. you feel that in yeah, my yeah. opinion. Um, no, Fast Five's bloated too. They're all bloated. Yeah. But, uh, but I like the cartoonish approach. And there's some really good fight choreography in the new one. Have you seen Six? No. I oh. a, I, seen, I, I'm like one of the only people I know who's not a big fan of Five. And I'm trying to like get to the bottom of... No, I know people who don't like it. What? You think it's too cartoonish? And... It's it's just... I don't like the character. Like, no. The characters I don't like. The, I don't care about the plot. I, and really the action only comes at... The, like It's only like... 20 minutes of a almost right. two hour movie right but like i feel like those like fast five at least like people are just responding to the fact that like the first just four were it, so bad just well <laughs> not even that just that action scenes in general are just so incompetently shot these days that's very true and that just the fact that justin lynn pulled the camera back and you could see destruction yeah was like like it just it was right. it's like the special olympics where it's just like yeah. like the bar has been lowered so much that if, when Fast Five came out, people lost their shit. If but, not for the Transformers movies, we wouldn't give a damn about Fast yeah, Five. Yeah, exactly. More for that, <laughs> it's uh, an interesting theory. Michael Bay, like, oh yeah, there's just... Such I, I cannot watch... Uh, basically, I don't really watch action movies anymore because... Most of them are awful. Because just the primary reason to watch them are just... They're so poor, poorly choreographed and stuff. I don't know. Maybe I'll see it. Uh, the other thing is a lot of people are just obsessed with how insane... Uh, an unlikely a franchise it is. Yeah. So I might want to just watching the whole thing and seeing it weirdly transform into like a movie about stopping street racing too. Dude, there are as many Fast and the Furious movies as there are live action Star Wars movies, yeah. which is insane. Yeah. It's it's incredible. The idea. Of, yeah. And it's, and the, I, I love that they are keeping the numbers in the title because they, because at post eighties, like people got really ashamed about having so yeah. many entries and they'll just do subtitle after subtitle. Yeah, that's true. 
And, uh, but Fast and the Furious is like, fuck it. This is Fast and the Furious 6. Seven's coming. They're already filming it. Yeah. They're, they're, oh, they, you didn't know this? Uh, they, they, yeah, they, ste- there, right? they tease at the end of 6 into 7. Uh, it's never going to end. It's looking at 250 domestic. I like how they, and I was like, I, I don't know why I even started this conversation because, again, I haven't seen the new one. And I, if you didn't like five, five, I wouldn't bother. If you okay. didn't like five, I wouldn't bother. But, uh, I just, I just, I think that's, more, it's, it's interesting. More than I actually sure. enjoy it, but I like how they accidentally created the Expendables. Whereas the actual Expendables, it was it's so beleaguered and put together, and it's just it's just a pain to watch because mm-hmm. it's just uh, it, it's just so falsely constructed and and pandering. So where this they just accidentally kept adding people yeah, until basically. they had the Expendables. <laughs> basically, they got to get Jet Li over there and right. Nick Cage. I heard Nick Cage for Expendables three, which is just like. I didn't see Expendables 2. Oh, I, I, I wouldn't. Expendables 1 is what I'm talking about. It's horrible. All the action is just it's awful. horribly shot. It's so. awful. Um, yeah, you're right. No, they kind of Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Vin Diesel and Statham's going to be in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're doing it on their own and making a fortune. Yeah. I can't imagine that any one of those people get it needs too high a paycheck. No. Of course not. Well, especially not Diesel, who only does franchises. Now. Yeah. They're, they're doing a Riddick movie. They're doing another Riddick movie? In September. There's a preview. Really? Yeah. So Diesel just like, I like how Diesel tried. He was like, oh, I'm not going to do any Fast and Furious movies. <laughs> he's, I'm going like, to do Boiler Room. Right. right I'll, do, I'll do Find Me Guilty, which three people saw. <laughs> and then finally he's like, ah, screw it. And he goes back to his franchises. Yeah, yeah he's doing Riddick. And it looks cheap. It looks like a straight to video Riddick yeah. movie. But it's, yeah, it's in I'm that. holding out for the After Babylon uh, <laughs> sequel. Uh, I'm waiting for him to go back to the Triple X movies. Yeah. Oh man, that's right. <laughs> Triple X was a series that he was he didn't even he, he left on it. that one. I know. Oh. He's probably talking to someone about doing it now. That's right. Vin Diesel used to star in movies. He did. I like I, I was like, oh yeah, that guy in the Fast and the Furious, right. and I think he had like a he had a, he had a I think he had a role in Boiler Room. Right, Boiler Room, <laughs> like, yeah. Everyone was like But it's like, no, he actually used to be in a cup like more than a few movies. That's right. That's he did. Weird. He was in some awful kids movie, what was that? The Pacifier. Yeah. yeah. That's true. Ah, Vin Diesel. But you're right. Future generations will be like that guy from Fast and Furious mm-hmm. movies. Yeah. yeah. And then, oh, did you, like, they'll watch Boiler Room and it'll be like when you see Clint Eastwood in the sequel to Creature from the Black Lagoon. It's like right. a scientist. You're like, what is he doing? Or you there? see like, Mark Hamill in anything else. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, no. Like, he, he was an actor before right. before he became. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Before he just came an image to sell. Or when you see Roger Moore in anything else. Whenever I, I see Roger I Moore seen, in anything I else. I haven't seen Roger Moore in anything. I don't like the James Bond movie. So I've never I've never finished a, a Roger Moore James Bond movie. So really? No, I I don't. I, those those Sean those Connor. I watched uh, what I, I watched. Uh, you only live twice. Okay, and it was so slow and boring. I'm just I I mean I don't I'm not a big fan of any of the Bond movies really. But right. Uh, no, the Moore ones aren't great. But I grew up with Moore, and so then when you started seeing him or old movies where he was something someone else, well, it was like what, so weird. What kind weird. of an actor was he before Bond? Like what? Barely. Was... He was dramatic. Okay. I mean, and barely, or, or like Shatner. When Shatner tries to do other things, oh, I yeah, always go, that's "No, that's not right. That's not going to work." Or Leslie Nielsen in <laughs> Leslie his pre-comedy. Pre- oh yeah, 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 yeah. Like, what in the his hell dramatic is days? Leslie Nielsen doing <laughs> right. this, and he's a villain. Right. Uh, oh. Poor Vin Diesel. That's good stuff. Although, when does it end? Fast and Furious 9, 10. I don't understand. I Where's the ceiling? The Not this one. This one's made more than the five. So yeah, when does but it... No, I think this might... I don't know. Like, Is this the ceiling? If the premise... If the whole premise of this series of films is, I can't believe how crazy this is, right. then there has to be a limit. There has to be a point where 
it like just breaks reality and it just breaks everything and it just becomes too stupid for even meatheads to like Moonraker in the Bond series. Yeah, there we go. They have to reach a Moonraker. <laughs> they have to point. reach a Moonraker. Point. <laughs> All right, when they start traveling to outer space, <laughs> they, they drive a car into a right. space shuttle. It's possible, probably yeah, in, like, by ten or eleven, mm-hmm. Fast and Furious ten or eleven. They always go to space. Eventually, they're going to go to space. Tokyo. I mean, they basically remade. Five in Europe for six, and it's made two hundred fifty million dollars domestically. I mean, yeah. it's not that much different. It's just the same cartoonish silliness. Um, and so I just think they're going to do it again, and this time with Statham, I just think and make three hundred million. It was, it's <laughs> such an unlikely. And again, I you know the people I know and who I talk to movies about are the people who are you know cinephiles and stuff like that, and right. not average. I really don't. I don't have a firm grasp on what average audience is. Right. Who aren't seeing these movies sort of semi ironically? I don't know what they think of these series, and I have to imagine they make up most of the people who are seeing this. I yeah. can't imagine this is only people who are like are into comedy or. But it crosses over because yeah. you'll have that indie cinephile audience. Who's I, it's like, just I such love an franchise. Yeah, no, especially be. after three yeah. when three bombed and it was awful. Like the idea that it would be, it's been a resurrected franchise. Mm-hmm. They've already had a bomb. And they four, didn't just and build. It wasn't well received either. Four is a pilot. Yeah. Crap. It's a bad movie. Yeah. Uh, like it just, the tone's off. It doesn't work. Uh, three's better than four. And so when four was as bad as it was, I thought they were done. But then five shocked us all. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. I, yeah, just really weird and interesting. It, I mean, culturally you're right. After earth, which opened this weekend is going to probably top out around sixty-five or seventy million mm-hmm. domestically, and Fast and Furious Six is going to make two hundred fifty million. That's amazing that how M Night Shyamalan had went from uh, M Night Shyamalan yeah. presents to like don't put him in the no, don't put him in the commercial because of the Devil Story. Remember the Devil Story? The there was so a movie called that Devil. Movie was directed by him when his name came up in the preview and people yeah. booed. Oh really? Yeah, there was a story of like. In LA audience where there were executives and people there and it said M. Night Shyamalan presents right at the end of the yeah. trailer and people But boom. still he's working. That's the best <laughs> to me is the crazy thing. Because like, well, last, last Airbender made like 140 domestic. It did, did it? well. I thought, yeah. I thought last Airbender – I didn't know that it was a financial success. It was. I knew everyone hated it. it was an, it's an awful, awful – I hate After Earth, Last Airbender's worst. That was my number two worst movie of the year that year. Yeah. Um, but it made money because kids went to see it. Mm-hmm. It had a kid audience built in, whereas this one doesn't, which is why it's bombing. Yeah, I think I remember derisive laughter. Oh, not, not necessarily horrible, movie, but derisive laughter when that when M Night Shyamalan came out during the Devil. I re- I remember an audience an audience response too, but I heard of booing stories, which is why his name's nowhere on the After Earth previews. You don't see it anywhere. Um, pretty soon they're gonna have to get rid of Jaden Smith's name too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I feel bad for the kid a little bit. I don't feel that bad for him. He's a millionaire and he's never done anything right. that took any talent. But uh, but he's clearly been pushed into things that he can't quite handle and can't quite do. I mean, Will Smith. You know, it comes from a story by Will Smith. It was produced by Smith and Jada and their whole family. Oh, really? It's a vanity project for I his kid. I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't, know, I didn't think Will Smith cared enough about filmmaking anymore. <laughs> like, uh, he cares about turning his kid into a star. Got to got to keep the cult of Smith going forward. That's crazy. I know. Yeah, uh, it's very and it leads to crappy filmmaking. That's mm-hmm. for sure. No, I really hate that movie. Still like that Will Smith song. That was a good song. Whip your hair. I like it. <laughs> All <laughs> <So>. right. Um, <laughs> I guess that justifies. Yeah. Ten yeah, years. Right. Ten years of junk. That's. <laughs> I don't even. I don't think most people like that song, but I know. Um. So I saw two spy movies, and I actually should uh, look up. I saw a spy who came in from the cold, and I saw Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. 
Um, and they're both uh, they're both films. One is from the uh, '60s. One is from like 2011. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 65. Uh, oh, shoot. Uh, sorry, I was trying to look at the uh, author, uh, John Lacar. Lacrae. Lacrae. All right, there we go. Um, and they're just uh, speaking of Bond films. They're kind of the opposite. And mm-hmm. I think they're. I think the books were written as a reaction to yeah. Fleming's uh, Bond novels. They were. Um, and okay, so Spy Came In From The Cold is a movie starring Richard Burton, and it's kind of fascinating to see a thriller with a lead who is an old, bloated drunk. Like, mm-hmm. that's his character, that's what he looks like, it's, it's, everything about him just looks weathered and, yeah. and harsh, and even, you know, even Gary Oldman and Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy, obviously not a heart, a heartthrob, but, and, you know, he's kind of elderly looking but like Richard Burton especially just looks like the least heroic person ever and it's and they could do that back then yeah they did that a lot more often there was a lot less concern about image yeah than there is now I mean he was he was sold as Richard Burton the actor he wasn't sold as Richard Burton that hunk from the cover of people you know (laughs) right exactly um but and I I can't really even describe the plot of Spike came in called too much because it's just so it's got a lot of twists and turns Um, but what really blew me away about it was number one, just how low key everything was. Um, but also it's, it, it has this really strong, it's not just a thriller. It's not just a game of cat and mouse. It's not just about, you know, surprising you with plot twists and, and, uh, you know, 10 scenes where someone's cover is about to be blown and that sort of spy movie stuff. It like has a really definite point of view on espionage mm-hmm. and on, that sort of warfare that was in the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Um, so does Tinker. Yeah. So they both do. Uh, Tinker, I got less of that out of. Really? But I also just got less of that movie. I had a much harder time following that movie in general. Really? Um, hmm. Yeah, I think... I don't know what, what it was about Tinker, but the, the plot was just so much harder to... But Tinker very clearly has a new age versus old age. I mean, they have to bring him back in from retirement. Um, the old way of doing things versus the new way of doing things. I, I didn't and the get the idea I, that we're I got, all being monitored constantly is very much in Tinker. I I mean, as much as being monitored, con- I I got that, but I I think that's also isn't that part of most every spy, spy movie? movie? Yeah, like isn't that just a? <laughs> yeah, I guess there's also the sense of the people who have to get their hands dirty and the people who don't. Yeah, in Tinker, that is more time. that 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 comes off more in Tinker. Yeah, oh, you know that that I agree with. Yeah, um, but Spike came in from the cold. What really makes it fascinating is. Um, the thing that, um, the 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 thing that points the finger at this whole uh, at this at this whole uh, organization is just the absurdity of espionage and right. of double crossing and like when the double crosses become triple crosses right. and when misinformation becomes actual information and. And where you think you're disrupting something, but you're actually helping something else. That's our, like, it gets to a point where nothing means anything right. anymore. And right. it, and it just, and it, and what really, you know, uh, I mean, I think the other difference between Tinker Taylor and uh, Spider Came With The Cold, Spider Came With The Cold is a lot more, uh, it's, I think, uh, I think Gary Oldman and Tinker Taylor is a lot more of a cipher than mm. Richard Burton is. Spy, Spy is much more accessible. Yeah it's, yeah. yeah, it's definitely more accessible. I agree. I definitely found it more uh, accessible. It's warmer. It's also just... For lack of a better word. Uh, ironic. <laughs> yeah, it's warmer for sure. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, so the very 
things that make the movie exciting. The idea of just these tense moments and these double crosses and the dramatic irony. And I don't know what's the reverse of dramatic irony where a character knows something that the audience does. Because there's actually quite a bit of that. Right, right. In Spider Came in the Cold, whatever that would be. Um, that all adds up to the actual statement, which is all of this is absurd and. And what you like, what is the actual point? What is the talk? Cause they're, you know, like there's actual lives at stake. And sure. Ah, uh, so that was, uh, yeah. So that part really, I haven't seen that in decades. So. I, the, the idea of the theme being tied directly into the mechanics of the plot really was mm-hmm. interesting to me. Cause mm-hmm. I, I'd never seen it sort of done that way. Usually it's both a thriller, but also there's this sort of B thing where mm-hmm. a character is beginning to wonder why he's doing what he's doing or whatever. Um, well, we can tie that into Quaron. I think children of men has themes tied directly into its plot. Oh into, yeah, uh, for sure. Um, I mean, it's a plot driven thing. <laughs> children of men is actually the, uh, Clive Owen's character in children of men is actually very similar to Richard yeah. Burton character. See people, we tie things yeah, together. Absolutely. Um, I love segues. So yeah, Tinker Taylor soldier spy, uh, in that any film, any modern film that treats the audience like an adult is exciting because yeah. you really it's really asking a lot of you to pay attention and to read into things right. and to oh, it's you not gotta, gonna spell things out for you. You gotta pay attention and to that's exciting and that's very exciting. And I so I really enjoyed Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy until I guess I failed its test <laughs> and I and I and I, and I was and I couldn't follow it. And at that uh, point it was just a matter of it was just a matter of epiphanies happening and sure. me not understanding why. And then me going, well, I will assume that makes sense. <laughs> I trust. Well, cause it's a giant book and a huge miniseries compressed into two hours. And a lot of it is very compressed. Did and you think the film suffers compared to the I, miniseries or the, I do, I do. Um, I tinker. The movie is one I admire more than enjoy. Yeah. I, and I think it's one of those films for some of the reasons you're stating for some of the performances, old men, Hardy, Hardy's really good. Yeah. A small part. Yeah. Um, for the art direction, which is that was stellar that, that's, throughout. That's one of the interesting things about uh, what was the what's the name of the author again? Le Carre. He has these. He does this. Uh, I mean, just I haven't read his books even, but just based on these films that are apparently follow fairly closely yeah. to his books, like the these sort of non like these sort of digressions where people who are so everything everything like the part of the absurdity of. The world of espionage and the Cold War and everything is just the bureaucracy right. and the left hand not knowing what the right hand's doing and everything. But he also just has these moments where characters will just step completely outside of that and mm-hmm. just have really human. Right, Hardy's the human heart yeah, of Tinker. Hard, yeah, he, Hardy, the movie is really cold until he shows up. That like and that, that, that sort of digression with yeah. him and his story is really and wonderful. I, I think Cumberbatch has a nice little bit of human touch there. Yeah. The the tense tension of his scene when he's got to go get the stuff and I like the, that and, and just the when, art direction is amazing too the, oh yeah the yeah. design of all of it is and the, incredible yeah, the, and the color is exactly the palette what, yeah the color palette is exactly what you feel when you're looking at maybe old photos right from like the early 60s but I'll never see it again yeah <laughs> like that's, it's one of those movies where I'm like oh, and it also gave Oldman his first Oscar nomination so it's got that historic that was his first nomination it's, isn't that crazy did he win no He's only been nominated once and never won. That was his first nomination, which is crazy. It is because he was always the answer to the "Who's the best actor who's never been nominated?" question. Okay, and uh, and now he's now who is it? Jaden uh, Smith. Probably. Well, of course. <laughs> uh, um, uh, we can go back to um, Donald Sutherland. He's probably the best actor. Oh. 
There we go. I don't, I don't have a good memory for that sort of thing. That's, yeah. I'm surprised Alan Sutherland wasn't nominated for Ordinary People or something. No, no. And that, wasn't that movie an Oscar darling? Yeah, no. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, you should have won. So yeah, and also, uh, as far as Spy came in from the cold concerned, um, I watched that. I also watched uh, this noir film uh, called City of Fear recently. And that's like this late 50s. And that black and white photography from the late 50s to the like mid 60s Right before the switch became where like right. pretty much the default thing was color. Right. That photography is always just so beautiful. Who directed that? Um, which one? City of Fear? Yeah. I don't recall. Uh, I feel like I've seen it. It's, it's the it's where the uh, it's an escaped inmate thinks he has uh, a thinks he has like a kilo of cocaine, but it's actually a radioactive element. Oh. Um, maybe I haven't seen it. I might be a kilo of heroin. But at any point, at any rate, if 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 this sort of isotope gets disturbed then it will cause a massive radioactive fallout in the city of los angeles so it's it's honestly not a great movie but uh for for a for a film that is literally about a ticket a man running around with a ticking time bomb not knowing as a ticking time bomb yeah they don't make a lot out of that premise to make it exciting and tense okay but it is very beautifully shot okay and yeah spyro came in for the cold i would recommend just on the basis of just how it looks and just I haven't seen it, like I said, decades probably. So in the 80s maybe. And also that, I feel like there was more on location shooting. Uh, I mean, certainly in Britain, there was just less studio space and therefore more on location shooting. But yeah. like, also that era was sort of that, there was more of a shift towards, yeah. uh, you know, shooting in the city and stuff. And, you know, that stuff is always so valuable. And Burton's always great. Even when he was bloated, Burton yeah. was great. Yeah, I mean, well, and in fact, him being bloated is part of what makes part it great. Part of greatness. Dude, I can watch Virginia Woolf over and over. Yeah. Every day. I love those. I love that movie. I love their scenes together. But anyway, we don't need to get on a Burton track. And yes, he was bloated in that too. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Yeah. Um, that's about it. I played I played a uh, an indie game. I Real quick, I could say I played an indie game called, called Proteus no, no. Uh, recently. And uh, it's about like a 45-minute game where you explore an island. That's all I really want to say about it. Other than like it's amazing and almost made me cry for and it's it's really unexpectedly affecting what system uh it's a it's for pc okay um i don't know it might be uh it might be on xbox or ps3 but i don't think so i think i would have heard of it yeah because i do a lot i do a lot of console but not a lot of pc you you, it's a uh it basically looks like if you if you ever watch old you ever seen like footage like old amiga like rpgs and stuff that sort of like 16 color like graphics footage i was around in my mind i had a commodore 64 that sort of art uh that art style that sort of yeah. weirdly shaped uh pixels like if that sort of overhead uh kind of you'd see something like that or like king's quest or something sure. uh was then a fully 3d world that's sort of the art style okay and you wander around this island and the only interactions you have is you can move around and you actually don't even need the uh, keyboard to move around you just click mm-hmm. left click and that moves you forward and right click moves you backward um and then there's a button that allows you to sit down for no real reason uh and it's just there's but there's this intense sense of discovery where just every uh, every new thing you find and then there's a day night cycle so just the island's constantly changing and mm-hmm. then other things happen, which I, I don't want to sure. uh, spoil anything, but yeah, I played that recently and it really just blew my mind. Sense of discovery is what's missing from modern games. Yeah. It, it's, it's been replaced it, by headshots. Right, exactly. And that is, that's 100% what Pro, like Proteus, that is its 
formal. That's that is its mode of interaction. It's just I discovery like and like and that. because there's no action button, because there's no guns right. or weapons, your only mode of discovery is to walk towards something or away from something. I like and, it. Yeah. So there was a great game last year called Journey. Yeah, the, I've heard a lot about that. Journey's amazing, and it I've kind of similarly it, breaks things down. Have yeah. seen this one compared? Yeah. So I'll anyway, try and find it. Uh, yeah, if you have a Steam or whatever, I think it's like nine, sure. nine bucks or something on Steam. It's really amazing. So uh, that's about it. Um, I think we can go into uh, director of the episode. Yeah, let's do it, Alfonso Cuarón. In 1961, Alfonso Cuaron was the son of a nuclear physicist, Alfredo Cuaron. He studied philosophy at the National Autonomous University of Mexico before switching to film school and finally dropping out to get a job in television. He got his big break in 1991 directing his first film, Solo Con Tu Pera, or In the Love in the Time of Hysteria. Before long, he was a hot commodity, directing everything from hit art films like Itu Mama Tambien to blockbuster commercial fare like Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Ah, yeah. Ooh. Dig that sound. Ichimama Tambien, as I sort of mentioned earlier, was a very kind of important film for me in my history. Uh, I've probably, uh, I don't, I don't rewatch, I don't obsessively rewatch many movies, but this is definitely a movie I've seen eight or nine times. And I really, yeah. And for a movie I don't own, that's impressive. It's definitely, it's a movie I just rent all the time. Wow. And just, uh, what it's, yeah, there's something, I mean, there's a lot that's hypnotic about it. I, sure. 
there's Curon's uh, sort of style, which, and I didn't see great expectations. Don't um, don't bother. Yeah, but did did his did his sort of style that you see in this and Children of Men? Well, you saw one earlier than this, though, didn't you? You saw his first film. Oh yes, so but was, that that was didn't have any of this. His stuff. first film, Love uh, it, the American title is Love in a Time of Hysteria. I think it was. I think the Spanish title translates to Only with Your Partner. Okay, that film. That had a very strong sense of style, but that style was Almodovar's. Like he just ripped off Almodovar completely. Like it, really, the the similarities between Love in a Time of Hysteria and uh, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown is astoundingly strong. I can't picture Cuarón doing that because yeah. Cuarón is so. Well, this is because well, he started out in TV, right? Um, and this is this was his first sort okay. of move into feature films, and it's. I mean, it's not. It doesn't look like a television show. There's. It's strikingly mm. shot and stuff, but it's a. But it's got that overly stylized Almodovar look. Yeah, and it's it's got the very high production design, and mm. it's got this sort of uh, again it's the thing I associate with women on the verge of a nervous breakdown, where right. um, it's both super cinematic, but it feels like a play because it all takes place on right. like two oh, different yeah. sets. Oh yeah, yeah. But I mean, Pedro has such a vibrant color palette, and Cuarón yeah. does not. Cuarón likes his muted They're, colors. The, 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 the colors aren't as muted. Okay, uh, they're not. Almodovar are vibrant. They don't, yeah, it doesn't yeah, have that, right. but it's, but it has the tone of something like Women on the Verge of an Earth okay. Breakdown. It has that, that sort of thing where it's very sweet natured, but also it's not a, fr- like, this, the, the basic plot is it's a womanizer who screws over a nurse uh, that w- works at the clinic where he just had a AIDS test. So she tells him that he, uh, so she like oh. writes down on his test that he has AIDS. Oh, nice. And it's so, so and then, then it's him like, Getting suicidal over having wow. AIDS, and but it's a very light, entertaining comedy. Sounds like it. Uh, is this on DVD? Netflix? Uh, yes. uh, oh. Criterion actually. Oh, uh, oh really? It. Oh wow. Okay. So and it's it, no, it's it. worth seeing. It's, it's yeah, I will see it. Not great. I mean, it's a it's a comedy that's more pleasant than it is uh, than it is funny, but it's it's worth seeing. But anyway, that movie does not have his style in it. Well, I mean, little. I mean, the at least his style, I should say, it doesn't have the. E2 Mama Tembien, Children of Men, uh, from what I've seen of Gravity, sort of Well, let's try and takes. define what that style is. Okay, long takes. Long takes, um, exploring an environment. He loves nature. He loves the world, um, the natural world. The camera going on digressions. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, journeys yeah. in general, especially by car. He loves yeah. cars. He loves journeys. He loves travel. Um, now, yeah, that muted color palette. The muted you, color palette. Um, I'm trying to think what else. I've seen Believe, which is a show he's got coming on in NBC mid-season. So it's uh-huh. going to be like January or February, and it fits all of these things we're talking about. Uh, we'll get let, let's not start there, but yeah. so as long as we're going to talk about his style, let's define what that is. Um, and I guess you're right. It's I think, and you said we, we've gone a long time now without mentioning Harry Potter, which yeah. is his most successful film. Uh, no, I, I like believe his... Potter has some of those themes. I well, it's. Uh... Especially in his interest in the natural world. The thing that I don't like about the first two Harry Potter films is they feel so insulated. Uh-huh. Like Diagon Alley and Hogwarts, you can tell they're a Chris Columbus backlot set. Mm-hmm. They have no personality whatsoever. Um, and that's why I hate the Columbus Potter yeah. films. Like, vibrantly hate them. Yeah. And then the third film came around and it felt to me like like they were actually in a forest. Like they were actually in a world that could be like the world I'm well, in. I- and I should be, uh, to, to 
to give it to give my feelings on the third Harry Potter film context, I've only seen the first Harry Potter movie. I didn't like it. So the for first many and third is first all and third. You know, I've read the first like five books or so. Okay, but I didn't see Chamber of Secrets. It just it wasn't a series. Horrendous. I a yeah. lot of it wasn't a series I had a lot of uh, interest in, and uh, I liked it when it first came out. But watching it now, and maybe again, just the context of watching it as an out as a uh, Curon film instead of a. Um, Instead of as a Harry Potter film compared to the rest of the series, yeah, it just like it just has no room to breathe, and I none think of a them lot do. of those movies, right? Just, yeah, they just rush from scene to scene. But and I, I, I think just the fact that the pervasive CGI and everything, yeah. like it hampered how he was able to shoot it. Um, I agree with that. He doesn't like CGI. I mean, there's like, hardly any. Okay, in so the first shot of Itumama Tambien right. is a camera peeking around a corner. Just, and also, actually, funny funny enough, the first shot of Love in a Time of Hysteria is a camera zooming in on a couple making love on a mattress on the there floor. So it's, they open the exact same way. And the opening of Harry Potter, Prisoner of Azkaban, it's him going through his window and it's him under the sheets. And he's quote, oh, right, playing yeah. with his wand. That's right. And believe the NBC show opens with a little girl in the backseat of a car, and then he pans back to the front of the car and move, starts moving around the inside of the car. Oh, so like it's, the, it's the Children of Men yeah. shot, and, and then the car gets attacked. And it's like, in case anyone didn't know yeah. who made this, everyone who's seen Children of Men, even if they don't know Quaron did believe, is going to go, oh my god, so, it's that scene from Children of yeah, Men. <laughs> so, so Prisoner of Azkaban, that opening, to me, feels like Huron. Yeah. And then the very next shot after the title card or whatever is a handheld shot of of uh, his uncle Vernon or whatever yeah. yelling at him and like just following Uncle Vernon around the house. Right. That those two shots okay. are to me the only parts that really. Felt uh, like there's some stuff later too, but you yeah. just got overwhelmed Apparently by the CGI. Also, some, something someone pointed out to me that again I just wouldn't notice because I. Don't I haven't I mean I haven't seen the first film since it was in theaters and I haven't never seen the second film but apparently he was the one who decided to put them in street clothes and stuff and that, right and and okay I will admit there was a little bit of Chamber of Secrets is by far the worst film is it so there's a little bit of bounce back to oh my god yeah because doing what I do I knew I was going to have to sit through at that time seven of these or right, however long right, right. I'm not sure we even knew I think we knew at that point it was going to be seven yeah. books so I was like and at after Chamber of Secrets it sounded like torture yeah. like because i just couldn't believe and but then we found out Quaron was doing the third one and to me i still i mean like i said i haven't seen it in years and you've seen it more recently so i can't defend it as much as you can take it down yeah. but i remember azkaban having much more fingerprints of its creator than a lot of films like that a lot of blockbusters but you can tell me i'm wrong yeah That's i mean I, yeah. I think I, again, I think it just we could be working from different contexts. Totally. When you say compared, compared to yeah. Harry Potter movies, compared to most blockbusters, I'm saying compared to the other Elmo, the other I keep saying Elmo Dover, other Alfonso Cuarón movies that I had watched that week. Okay, well then we're going to get deep into something though, which is that you can only judge a film on what it intends to do, and as a Harry Potter film. Quaron's film works, in my opinion. I you don't judge I don't a like film. any of the Harry Potter movies well, because okay. <laughs> uh, because they're just uh, if. If they were able to do the Game of Thrones thing where they had just like a 11 episode season okay. of where they were able to cover a book. Because, okay, uh, to get into it, we can get into a digression about Harry sure. Potter again. This is, we, we have time. But um, the thing I like about the Harry Potter books is that they have to save the world from crazy wizards and monsters and do their homework. Mm. That to me is what make what I liked about those books so much was that I don't like fantasy very much, but I like that relatable feeling of translating uh you know pre-adolescence and adolescence and just being a kid and being lost and that that feeling of frustration right. into not just 
doing crazy, stupendous things involving sure. you know, spells and stuff, but also like I can't believe my teacher is such a dick. Sure. Snape is such an asshole. It's hard I, to capture. It's my fun. least favorite class. I can't believe we have to go back to that class. Totally. Making me write so much, and because those movies have to run through all of the big scenes and set pieces right. and the plot points, you don't get a sense that they're students. At, you just you just get a sense that they like it's like community where you wonder. Uh, when they ever go to class, they or don't. When they ever right. like have jobs or any like it's like that sort of thing to me is the and that to me is eliminating the key appeal of those books. So well, right, so you're making the argument that they never could have worked um, <laughs> because you can't capture as, that in film. Probably not as a yeah, probably not as just feature films right. unless they just radically altered the plot. It's possible. I mean, everyone comes at this series from different places. I've never read the books. I hated the first two movies, yeah. and, and then was. Pretty excited by three and four, and then satisfied with the rest. Mm-hmm. So the, as a series, it worked out fine for me. I'm sure one day I'll watch them or whatever. Uh, but, uh, but like I said, we talk, we're talking about a lot of stuff. Yeah. It's not anything I ever feel I need to go back to. I'm sure what will happen with me is my kids will grow up and yeah. I'll have to watch it. But uh, no, it's a few years down the road. <laughs> so, and then you'll have a completely new set of contexts. Well, that's right. To view it's, and, and the question will be, how dated will they look to my children? Oh Especially with the CGI. Oh, my gosh. That's the other <laughs> thing about Prisoner of Azkaban. For a movie yeah. that is wall-to-wall CGI, it, like, I, it, it actually threw me into a little bit of a crisis where it's just like, am I never going to be able to watch any movie like 10 years down the road? Not from the late 90s or, or early to mid 00s or aughts yeah. or whatever we're calling them. They look like cartoons now. Yeah. Have you seen I Am Legend? No. It looked bad oh, then. I mean, no, that, yeah, that it looked, looked bad, bad then, then but now, now yeah. uh, even Avatar starting to look dated. I mean, like the stuff that people thought looked great then, uh, we could do a CGI versus practical effects entire mm-hmm. episode. Practical effects are always the way to go. I mean, look at Alien. Alien still looks fantastic. Mm-hmm. And it's because it's not CGI. It's practical. Right, right. Look at Moon. Duncan, it, Duncan we, Jones Moon, which was I'm, all practical. And the other thing about Alien that I think, because I'm actually, I really don't like the special effects in Aliens. Oh, and I think the well, other thing about yeah, Alien right. is they did the Val Luton thing where it's just like it had to be in shadows just due to the limitations. Sure, yeah, yeah. And therefore... But it works. It works better than Aliens where they... It looks like just a bunch of... Like it looks like people wearing football gear the way they... It does a little bit. And it's but even the, creepy and sleek and... The famous chestburster scene, I mean... Oh, yeah, that, that, that has a natural... No, I, I, would, I would make the opposite oh, case. Oh, really? Yeah, I think it looks great. Because it still is something relatable. It's not a CGI cartoon. It's that no, guy. No, no, something's it, popping it, out it, of that guy's stomach. It would have aged. I mean, it, I don't even know what the set Yeah, can you imagine if it was a cartoon thing yeah. coming out of his stomach? Like a stop motion. Right, it would look horrendous. Uh, so, But anyway, so so that's Alfonso Cuaron, uh, yeah, director right. of Alien. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're going no, around no, in circles yeah, again. But, um, but, I like it. Okay, we're, so, we're talking about practical effects. Children of Men, one of the things I love about Children of Men is how much he grew grounds that film in reality mm-hmm. the streets they're on it, it opens with a guy going to get a cup of coffee and watching a tv newscast well and this is the other thing i should say about alfonso Cuaron, and probably you know it's probably something i didn't realize until i started watching more movies and saw the sort of things i began to gravitate towards and this is a really abstract maybe stupid uh intellectual bullshit kind of a thing to be really obsessed with but i'm really obsessed with the way that films can uh create a can explore three-dimensional environments and give you a full picture mm. of a three-dimensional environment. He loves to move his camera around. Uh, and, loves yeah, it. and he loves exploring the environment. He does. And, you know, so filmmakers like him who have those uh, long shots, like, it's just, it's just dazzling to me because we just traveled 500 feet with this camera. Right. And we just, uh, I mean, you know, more so with, like, children of men, but... 
you know, Mex- like Mexico is its own character in each oh, of the Oh, Tom Bian's got a ton of that. All the circling shots around the cars. And whenever they're in like a room, he, he, he'll give you every side of that room. He, he, he makes, he doesn't want you to ever feel like you're watching a play or anything yeah. staged or anything on a back lot or a set. It's very natural world and, stuff. And even, and even shots that are set up to be, you know, just, they're just set up shot like they're not, you know, close up handheld shots. He'll shoot them handheld. There'll right. be that little bit of tremor right. of the cameraman's hands and stuff. And yet it, it, we talk about his sense of realism and yet I always feel like he wants you to know that it's a movie too. Because, for example, in Tambien, the narration yeah. that's constantly coming in. And this is not a, just a slice of life story. It's not a character study. It's There's more to it than that. The political themes mm-hmm. in Tambien, which seem to keep surfacing. Yeah. Like when... They're in the car and something's going on on the side of the road and the camera goes to look on the outside of the road even though no one in the car is looking outside. (laughs) It's it's another character. The narration is this incredible tool he uses to where it is not immediately apparent uh, why – these things are happening. Like it's always interesting, right? And it's always interesting to see the ca- the camera leave the car and then look at an accident and then tell this story. And it's yep. always just like, wow, that's really. But like that is what that film. That film is about myopic people becoming a little less myopic. Like at least the two chill the kids. The yeah, it, I suppose it's sort of about them sort of uh, uh, they are changed at the end of the film in a way that they look at everything differently and they're not just these sort of. Pleasure seeking, right? Uh, like we all are at that age. Yeah, but exactly. Yeah, I suppose that's true. It's and a it's, coming of age story, in that and that's it's just that sort of uh, sense of you know, uh, sort of increased sense of empathy. But he's also playing with filmmaking tools. Like the narration often doesn't just come in immediately. He'll drop the sound for five seconds, and then the narration will come in just to remind you, hey. This, you're watching a movie. He does it in the this most is, disruptive way. Exactly. Yeah. And even Children of Men, that great opening scene with the bomb going off and then you've got the ringing sound that plays over the next several scenes. Mm-hmm. From the very beginning, Quaron is like, I'm playing games with you a little bit. Yeah. I'm forcing perspective. I'm playing with sound. And he, and he does that in Believe, too. He plays major games. In does this, he? Yeah. I believe, I'll just briefly talk about it, uh, the plot because it's not too exciting to talk about something you can't watch for seven months. But um, a little girl, it's kind of got a children of men sense in that there's a girl who clearly is more advanced than any of us. She can see a little bit of the future. She can do telekinesis. She's got special powers. Okay. Uh, and, of course, everybody wants her. So she's the – whatever her character is, the key mm-hmm. of this. So um, it opens in a car scene with her and her two parents who she's had for – we find out later she's had for two weeks because people just keep trying to take care of her and then they get killed because the bad guys want to get her. So it's all about getting this one girl. Delroy Lindo's in it. Kyle MacLachlan's in it. Um, and it's got so many fingerprints of like children of men. Like this girl is going to save the future. We need we, we need to keep her alive. We need to keep on the run. Now, it's very much a road. created by Kieran? Yeah. And J.J. Abrams. Okay. And he wrote and directed the pilot. And I don't know if he'll write and direct more, but he did at least the pilot. And once again, I should put in a major caveat. A lot of times when I see stuff this early, it changes drastically because this is like a rough cut version. I don't think this will change too much because it's Quaron and Abrams. They're not going to mess around. And it really works. It's really – it's the – I've seen a bunch of shows for the new season. It's the best one I've seen yet. It's a it's a little heroesy. It's a little touchy, like things we've seen before on TV recently, like this girl is the future – and that stuff might be overplayed and overdone, but it's funny, it's smart, uh, and it's incredibly well shot, of course. Like a lot of those great, awesome handheld shots. Is it, pol- uh, is it overtly political? 
Uh, not not yet, like but I could see it going Ichibama there. Ichibama and Children of Men are? No, but I could see it going there quite easily. I mean, there is a little bit of... There's a subplot, and I'm a little worried it's going to get too much highway to heaven, for lack of a better example. Because what's, what's happened, and I don't want to spoil anything, is she, she's going to be on the run helping people across the country while oh, the bad guys are following her. So it's going to have that so if case Kiran, of the week type thing. He uh, He's the one who actually is doing a Hulk series yeah exactly it's Hulk yeah with a little girl and her, and her death row inmate Delroy Lindo breaks out a death row inmate to protect her and save her and keep her on the run at the beginning and uh-huh. he's he's a new actor he's really funny and, and engaging and I've seen a lot of really bad tv lately and I watched this one today and thumbs up to that but I love that it's we're talking about whenever I do one of these with you I like talking about the fingerprints of the guy we're yeah, talking about yeah. and I love that you can see his fingerprints on this, for sure. You can even see a little bit of Abrams. Abrams loves parents and children. That's his thing. Yeah. Lost Super 8, even Star Trek. He loves parents and kids, that relationship. You can see a little bit of that here, too. Um, it's part of his Spielberg. Obsession. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I love that. I love the idea, especially in TV, where a lot of times the creators, you don't see enough of the creator's voice. I like that we're going to see that. Probably in January would be my guess. It's called Believe. It's good for the for the Lynch episode. I watched the Mulholland Drive pilot. Yeah, and it was and it's and watching it as a pilot made everything about Mulholland Drive make more sense to me. And it also just made me miss the idea of a of that being on every a, week. Not just a create because I mean, there's J.J. Abrams presents, there's sure. Joss Whedon presents, sure. but like the idea of uh, of a of a television show, not just uh, thematically, um, but like stylistically being a the work of a director I really yes. fascinating. And I think that's why I like believe. It's got some definite cheesy elements. The case of the week this week is definitely cheesy. But uh I'm okay with it. Because I, I think in in the end, Quaron has always been a little bit sentimental. Yeah. I mean he makes coming of age films. He makes Well I mean that's uh, Children of Men is about hope. That is if so, he did not have that warmth because yeah. I I wish I I could I couldn't find the book to reread this interview, but I had this interview a book that was all these interviews with different screenwriters, and they interviewed Alfonso Cuaron about sort of him and his brother write everything. Yeah, yeah. Together, and he they wrote uh you know they wrote Itumama Tenbin together, and what it was it was just a sex comedy. Right. It was just like about it was just a sex road trip comedy about two horny young boys, and that that movie with those characters, and I, I actually wonder um, when we. When we had a, when we had Damon uh, House on, um, for the uh, uh, oh man, uh, uh, Wong Kar Wai, oh, um, for the Wong Kar for the Wong Kar Wai episode, uh, he said something that had never occurred to me, which is, uh, I because I I had been impressed that Wong Kar Wai could films could be so quirky without being annoying, and he said that part of that could be that. Uh, just the fact that you don't speak the language, it's there's this barrier where you are accepting things intellectually more than seeing them as just an annoying person. Um, so I, I wonder yeah. a little bit if if this movie featured Americans and was in English, and these were two 17 year old boys who were this obsessed with cheating on their girlfriend totally, it'd be sex and just getting drunk. Like, <laughs> how much would I hate them? American American Pie? But um, I think oh, what saves them from just being irredeemable douchebags is just. The fact that he has so much warmth and so right. much heart, and he's and he the fact that he's so and there's truth in it, there's and, honesty yeah, in and it. A lot of that narration that drops out is right. just exploring these this sort of pain that they're both coming from. And and major props to Luna and Bernal, who are really quite they're, good. They're, very they're not, good. yeah. I mean, we're not talking about um, 
Jason Biggs here. We're talking about two – as great as Bernal has been in the last 15 years, every time I see him, I think that kid from Itumama Tambien. Yeah. Like it's still the one that goes, my brain goes to, when I, especially Luna. Luna's not really done anything yeah. as good since. Bernal's done a lot. And they're both – and Verdu is fantastic. She's great. She's great. So he's he works really well with actors. So while he may have this basic coming-of-age story or this – thing that feels a little too much like Heroes or Highway to Heaven or The Hulk. He works well with his cast. He, he finds the right people and he directs them well. So he's not just a technical director. I mean, Gravity, we might as well talk a little bit about Gravity. I mean, I'm not a Bullock fan. I have my concerns there. But it's Quarone, and and my wife is even less of a Bullock fan because she saw the preview and she was like, oh, no, yeah. Sandra Bullock. And I went... We got to give Quaron a chance. I mean, he could work wonders with her. You never know. He could work wonders with anybody. For me, uh, it's Clooney and Bullock, right? Yeah. To Clo- me, I like Clooney enough that it balances out I do too. as if it was just two actors I was okay with. <laughs> That's fine. I can go with that argument. <laughs> yeah. But for me, it's even greater, which is that there are certain d- directors and creators who they can cast Jason Biggs and I'll go, all right, I'll give it a shot. Like, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt, is yeah. what I always say with so- certain people. I And I mean, also... The thing is, he writes good roles. Like, there's a lot of roles in Children of Men that could have been one note. Oh, um, the supporting cast is great. Hunnam the, and Ejiofor. And and all, but all of the supporting casts, because Children of Men is a more typical genre, it's a sci-fi. Yeah. I mean, you break it down, it is a sci-fi thriller in which people are running from one scene to the next scene. It's right. people on the run. Like It's, it's a journey movie. Yeah. It's a, so is Tom Bien. Yeah. Uh, so well, is Tom Bien is a, uh, you know, Tom Bien doesn't have that level of tension, doesn't have that no, genre. that's true. Sort of thing. But, like, all of those supporting characters are functional like all of those supporting characters do something for the plot right but they all feel so human and even like one of the craziest things to me about children of men is the big in this sci-fi thriller the big comeuppance our villain has is that he feels bad about what he's done (laughs) right he really like he's he guilt yeah he has guilt (laughs) and that's it like he doesn't get shot in the face he doesn't get punched off of a building like he feels guilt and then and then tragically, he's brought right back into war, like yeah. fighting um, yeah, yeah. after that brief interview. Like, right. to me, the because you know he he's never you know he's not given a ton of sympathy before that point, and he could have easily been dispatched or something right. without you know affecting the audience too much. But that but he you know Kiran cares about these characters, right. and he writes good characters, and therefore he gives actors something to do. Like, there's a lot of. It doesn't matter how good the actor is, just if they don't have no, nothing to do, if they don't, if their characters don't have any depth, if all those people are just two dimensional, you know, if. And the world they're in. That's a key part of Children of Men. Yeah. I mean, I, I watched it again today. I've seen it a few times. And one of the many things I love about that movie is that he, Quaron recognizes, unlike a lot of sci fi people, that the world will look largely the same in 20 years. Yeah. That, that, that it'll be a natural, there'll be forests and there'll be cabins and there'll be horses and pigs. A lot of times you see things set 20 years in the future and it looks like total recall. Like yeah. they're going to build all these giant skyscrapers and flying cars by 2027. And every animal goes extinct. Yeah. yeah. And every animal goes extinct and they somehow put all these infrastructures in that take us around well, the world. So there's this, there's this, uh, there's this essay by uh, William, oh, he, who wrote a uh, neuromancer. Gibson. Uh, Gibson. Yeah. William Gibson wrote this essay uh, that, that really made me think differently about sort of the way I look at sci-fi films which is that he said 1984 is not about what you know Orwell thought 1984 was going to be like. 1984 is about the year he wrote it in, which is 48. Oh right, like oh uh, and totally. Cura and that the Children of Men. I think I think uh, and the other one. I don't know how how on board you'll be for this, but I think the two most essential like 
uh, post 9-11 sort of war Ooh. on terror films. I'm going to throw one at uh, you. Okay, sure. I think I think one is Children of Men, and I think the other is Borat. <laughs> I think oh. Borat is so... It was... When that... And that is a movie that actually I don't think has aged well because it feels so of its time. But when that movie... When Borat came out, like, that was such a relief. It was like that... Like... That we could laugh at other cultures. That it was, that it was just willing to, yeah. That it was just willing to be so ruthless with how it picked apart American xenophobia oh. in in so soon after. But um, you don't think Borat could have had the same impact in the nineties? Um, no, I don't think so. Hmm. I don't think xenophobia was the same thing. I don't <laughs> think the fear of the other was the same thing. Or hmm. I, uh, I think that is a vitally, a vitally uh, like two thousand and you know mid 2000 bush uh, era kind of movie interesting uh that was that, that movie came out like, like sort of early in the second term or whatever like yeah that <laughs> there's a really interesting sort of hopelessness and not, not, to, had... be, not to put too fine a point on it because i know obama's you know uh campaign slogan or was hope but like like you watch you listen to uh, you know there's a lot of albums from like 2006 2007 a lot of movies in 2006 2007 there's just this feeling that it will keep declining forever oh, yeah. and the hopelessness is so strong it gave rise to the zombie genre i think the entire zombie zombie comeback is because of 911 yeah it's it's the fear of the other it's people who look like us but aren't us and yeah. want to eat our brains that's why zombie movies came back after 911 and they came back strong if you, if you chart it, you can see 28 Days Later, Dawn of the Dead remake. All of that is after 9-11. And zombie movies came back strong after Vietnam, too. Dawn of the first Dawn of the Dead. Because mm-hmm. it's a similar sense of there are other people out there who look like us but want to kill us. That's really, that's really interesting. Yeah. I never thought of... Uh, uh, I mean, obviously, Land of the Dead is something I thought of in that terms because sure. it's so blatantly satirical. But but anyway, like so Children of Men, just the constant if you see something say something but instead of terrorism there it's about yeah. immigration but like it's pretty much the exact same uh you know sort of public service announcements it's this uh exact same sort of increased military feeling yeah, yeah, yeah. about the police of the world yeah oh for sure um yeah people's rights being you know uh take like it's very patriot acty it of is a, Oh well, the the immigrants in the cages near the beginning when yeah. he walks by, stuff like that. It's hard to hard not to associate. I mean, there's a literal. Uh, I never noticed it until I saw like a screen grab someone took of it. But there's a literal person in a hood doing the Abu, Abu Ghraib really? uh, like sort of stance in the train when they're going into the refugee camp. Um, when but uh, it, but isn't that it's before when when did Abu come out? Uh, when year? When did those pictures come out? Is what I'm trying to I'm trying to do the math on that. I mean, is he literally grabbing that picture? I, it looks literally like there's a person in a oh. hood doing like, you know, th- with the arms stretched out. Because Children of Men is 2006? Yeah. Mm. Well, that'd be okay. interesting. <laughs> that would, okay, well, that, that would be creepy. I, I didn't even, uh, yeah, I didn't even I, consider that. I don't know my timeline there. But no, I mean, it's clearly a political film. Yeah, yeah. But, it could, but it's also a political film that could apply to other cultures, other cultures of increased military presence. It doesn't have to necessarily be read as a 9-11 film. Well, I mean, that's the other thing that's interesting about his movies is they're very globally minded. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Itu Mama Tambien is not just about Mexico. It's about Mexico. And it's about Spain. It's about right. how people from Spain view Mexico. It's right. People, you know, it's about how people from Mexico view people from Europe. And right. like that. And for a movie that, I mean, part of what Itu makes Itu Mama Tambien so thrilling is just that feeling that you're journeying through this country that is, you know, this unexamined part of this country that isn't, uh, you know, that isn't Cancun, that isn't, um, 
you know, it's it it's these sort of smaller border towns. Right. It's like all of that is just really thrilling, and the sense of place is so strong in that. Um, but it's also so globally minded at the same time. It feels so essentially Mexican, and yet it feels. Relatable. Like it's thinking about Mexico in the context of the world. Yeah. Quaron very clearly in everything he does wants to make something relatable, not just it, – it, he doesn't create specific situations like the total recall buildings and things that yeah. won't feel relatable. He, he puts people in cabins and in yeah. cars. He puts the road trips. kids in Exactly, street in street clothes. Right. He, things that people will understand and relate to. He very – considers very important. You can see that through all of his work. And I love that. I love all the sci-fi films, especially recently – that I'm attracted to have that grounded. The By world will look. Example. I love Minority Report in the in that the end they're in San Francisco and they're in a park and they're townhomes that look mm-hmm. like they look like now because even in the future those things will still exist because we still have buildings here today that look like they did 50 years ago. Right. I love that kind of stuff. I even love parts of AI that are grounded in that they're in a forest, they're in a house, they're not in a. Total Recall flying elevator. Well, I mean, part of I mean that it's so part of the feeling of that is so strong in Children of Men. Yeah, because part of the feeling of Children of Men is because the plot is that the human race is just slowly dying out. Right. Um, it just feels like wilderness reclamation. Like, yes, like the scene of the so the much of it is outside. Through, yes, the deer running through the school and just right. And like all of that, those images are so strong. It's a sci-fi movie in the woods. Yeah. It's a sci-fi movie that basically takes place in the woods. Because it's about the woods. It's about nature sort of retaking everything. Yeah, I guess so. Um, Yeah, so that, I mean, uh, so, uh, and there's another sort of thing. It's not as strong in in Children of Men as it is in like Ichumama Tempien or um, in uh, Love in a Time of Hysteria, but there's this very easy sexuality like even when uh key like first shows that she's pregnant like you see her you know breasts and like he there's a sort of interesting way he just deals with nudity where it's just uh part of it and and how people present themselves naked uh is like says what they're feeling about this the idea of them being like she she very forms this uh key when you know, she first takes off her clothes, you can, you know, see her breast right because that's just what you would see. But then also she forms this, like, sort of tableau oh, that a... looks like this very Virgin Mary-esque. Oh, my God, yeah. In fact, I'm kind of conflicted on that scene because it is such it's a... so pointed. Yeah. It is such a forced composition, uh, the way it's constructed with the animals in front of her and, mm-hmm. and, and the very clear religious imagery. Yeah. Um, and and Corwin doesn't usually do that. I, I watched Tom Bien yesterday again, and Tom Bien has none of that. The, the, the first sex scene in Tom Bien where they're like sideways on the yeah. bed and she's almost falling over. Yeah, yeah. I love that. that because in most, in most modern movies, he, her head would be on the pillow. Right. They would move her over. But yeah. it, that's not what would really happen in real life. So I love that sense. Of, and I'm not saying he has to do that all the time. But I watched Children again today. And that scene where like – it tracks down the room to her mm-hmm. and there's the animals. Well, children, and the... I mean, in, in general, I mean, there's that scene where he goes to visit his brother and oh, there's that, all of the those Crimson statues, King scene, yeah. yeah, Crimson King sort yeah. of playing, but yeah. also there's just all of that art is positioned in such a dramatic way. But that's almost satirical because that's yeah, exaggerated. Well, yeah, they're sitting there having a meal and there's a I Picasso think, on the wall. Mm-hmm. I mean, that stuff to me isn't supposed to be taken literally. And, and I think I, I might actually want to look this up because – I think the Pink Floyd's Animals like album cover is literally formed by the floating pig in the background. Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. By the no, it is. Standing in it front is. of it, and it like, is. 
Like I, I think that's just that. I think that's consistent with Children of Men. So um, they're, they're, you're right. There are some other visually very clearly composed scenes, but I kind of wanted. You were trying to say that that scene, just because we see your breast is naturally formed. I wanted it almost more naturally formed. I yeah. wanted it to feel less. Well, what I, <laughs> what, I find, what I find interesting about it is he gets that out of the way, so that when she forms the tableau, that's really yeah. Like, like that. What to me is they could have just cut a little bit closer. Right. And, but then it would have been the thing where, oh, this – there is uh, – so Steven Soderbergh, I think this was on the commentary for Out of Sight. Um, One of my favorite movies. Yeah, it's great. Where he said that there's this – where he says that he doesn't like having nudity, um, like actual nudity in his movies, at least when he recorded that. I don't know. There's probably more nudity in Magic Mike and uh, Behind the Candelabra than – or film the, fine, but he said, "Yeah, because he said more male like, because it turns his it turns his movies into a documentary." Um, Interesting. Where like suddenly you're no longer looking at this character as a character; you're looking at this character as, "Oh no, that would be that's Jennifer Lopez naked." Like right. I just saw Jennifer Lopez, but I think Curon flips that. He does the opposite, where he makes his films feel more like that because in the scenes where you would not expect, in the scenes where any other person would shoot it you wouldn't you wouldn't see alfonso Cuaron and diego luna like full frontal nudity right 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 he specifically just has it you know oh yeah the naked swimming scenes in tamien and stuff like that yeah like a lot of other directors would have, have avoided differently oh yeah but that would have taken you out for a completely different where you would be, I agree. Oh, this is the movie part of it you i know? agree and you know part of what makes that film so special is just that restless you know camera and feeling you're exploring a real world and that and anything that uh, would have and he does, and when he does break it with the narrations, very specifically. So, oh yeah, yeah. Um, that I find really interesting. I, I imagine there's not going to be much of that in Gravity or in his no, television series. I but. think. Well, no. I mean, what, not nudity, but yeah. there. But believe definitely feels a product of yeah. Tom Bien and Children of Men. The camera exploration. The well, I was talking of, more about the easy sexuality, oh, the, uh, no, the casual not sexuality. Not yet, at least. Yeah. No, not the, not in the premiere. Um, and probably not in Gravity. I can't imagine there's going to be much time yeah. for that. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, uh, so that's another uh, thing that really... Um, now, Children of Men, uh, one of the things I've gotten out of it, which is Maybe like a room two thirty seven thing, but it's Uh-oh. it's not it's not. I think Huron was trying to prove, um, you know, that the, the, the moon landing, is, yeah, the moon landing that happened. It's it, what I've gotten out of the film is it's a very it's a very strong pacifist film. Um, I think the setup of a world in which no one can be replaced um, yeah. sets up a stake where every human life is suddenly valu- like so much more valuable. Yeah, I think. The there's the the idea of um, his ears ringing after that bomb goes off, and Julianne Moore has this great line where mm-hmm. she, you know, that ear is the cell dying, and once that cell dies, you'll never hear that frequency again. Mm-hmm. Like there's that there's the fact that Clive Owen, for a star of a sci-fi thriller, he, I think he knocks out one person oh, right. uh, with a brick. It's not an action movie. Yeah, no, it's but except for the but cars, I mean the car he, scene. Yeah, he run. Yeah, he's on the run, but he doesn't. You know, he'll hit someone with a door or something, but right. he doesn't. He's not a hero. Like yeah, he doesn't he doesn't kill anyone in that movie. He doesn't. Right. There's, uh, you know, the war stops because they see you know a baby right. and all the soldiers. Like to me, that is a the part of what uh, Children of Men's message is. It's a very oh, yeah. sort of not pro life in the terms of anti-abortion, but pro life in the terms of uh, anti-war and anti. 
that's not a room 237 thing by any stretch yeah, that's okay, what it's yeah. about <laughs> i mean it's about yeah it's a it's a movie about hope and what happens when there isn't any yeah and about how even even those of us who don't have children you're trying to do things for the next generation you're trying to create a world that will even if you're just doing creating a podcast you'd like other people to listen to this right. and, and things to go on well if there's no Hope. If there's no future generations to hear you or appreciate the things you're talking about, what does that do to a society? That's what Children of Men is about right. to me. It, uh, and Believe is about that. And the title is Believe because we need to believe in something greater. We need to believe in something beyond us. And that's what Children of Men clearly is about. Is believing is finding belief, but that again. hopeless, but that hopeless, you know, like it could have so, you know, this same film made by another filmmaker, like this same film made by Michael Haneke, would not have that warmth. It would not have that sense it of hope. It'd never it never make would, it. It would just wallow in the hopelessness, and that's what to me yeah. is why I love Alfonso Cuarón so much, is he's, because he's able to go to these dark places. He's able to um, stop a. Uh, you know, he's able to go from a scene where two kids are farting in a car right. and they're trying to make each other smell each other's farts, and to a migrant worker who gets killed because. Right. They don't have reliable transportation to their job. They need to live like, and he's able to pull it off without it feeling overly sentimental. That ear dying line, the ear cells yeah. dying line, could have been horrendous. Yeah, it could have been this like overplayed. Oh my god, we get it symbolism. But he takes these moments that really shouldn't work, and these tonal changes that should feel abrupt, but they don't. He balances it all, and one of the ways he does that is with his. Lack of quick cuts, his his yeah. long bro- his long unbroken takes, his so we feel like we're a participant in whatever we're watching, and we're willing to accept. Okay, that line might have been cheesy. This character in Believe might be a little overdone, but we'll we'll go with it because we've accepted the journey with this director, and because we trust him, he, he earns audience trust almost immediately. Yeah, there's just something about it. It's like right from that opening scene of Children of Men. When, well, when I mean, he's walking the and the, the bomb goes up. trust is to just open with something that's jaw-dropping yeah. and different. And, and it's like, okay, I'm with this. I'm going to pay attention and, yeah, to I what's mean, happening. And, in a very different way. Itumama Tambien. Yeah. That is a sex scene unlike you've ever seen before. Absolutely. And that, and that, and that just that sort of innate sense of humor and warmth and just understanding of right. what people are like at that age. And, right. And not, not judging it but also not embellishing it. And Right. He like, gets you. He hooks you, and it's like, yeah. all right, this might be a little sentimental. This might be a little overdone. If I if I have to think about it, if I read it in a script, or if I just saw one scene. But the way he composes his films, he gets you on his page right from the very beginning. And then you, even even for me with Azkaban, you fell off. Yeah. But you talked about how you liked those first few scenes. Yeah, first first scenes are are great. Yeah. So um, he he, I, he works. And also, actually, I I didn't connect this to Azkaban, but this next point may be part of why Azkaban doesn't fit for me uh, as an uh, as a Curon movie is there's one of the things that is so wonderful about you know the humanistic nature of his films is he believes that people are good inside like oh, this last time I watched Children of Men I had always before I'd always seen it as Clive Owen he's burnt out on the revolution he's burnt out he doesn't think it will do any good and he gets dragged into it and then he just gets in over his head and something that is too important to drop mm. so he starts carrying again this time watching it what i realized is he he isn't he isn't cynical he no. is afraid to yeah. care like he'd been hurt so badly by his child dying that right. and what he's really tired of isn't he's not he's not tired of trying to change the world he's tired of pretending that he doesn't want to <laughs> 
That's, but but I, I caught this time. I think there's something else too. I don't think we're supposed to think that he's completely an average guy. That that we're supposed to know from the beginning that he has the potential for, to be better than the people around him. There's the scene, the very first scene. They're all watching the TV, baby Diego. Yeah. The next scene after the bombing, he's walking through an office and everyone's literally just sitting there crying. He's the only one still moving. In other words, I think everyone else well, is even more depressed than he is. And what, what's, <laughs> well, it's not even that they're more. What's interesting is it's subversive because. You know, the first time you watch it, you're just like, oh, this guy is an apathetic asshole. Who's but everyone else is a crying mess. They're all inert and they're not moving. In the world of the crying messes, the <laughs> right. apathetic it's, asshole is king. Exactly. <laughs> I think we're supposed to – well, also, they he's chosen for a reason. She knows he'll go through with the journey. Mm-hmm. So it's not like a, oh, my God, he's the savior type thing. But I do think Julie – is name Julie in the movie? I think it is Julie. Yeah. I think Julie knows that he'll do what needs to be done. So even though he's a cynical crying – mess he's not taking the quietest he's not just staring at the tv he's not crying at his monitor he's still moving and i i think that that's an important part to take away from it i don't i, I don't I, I, that's not how i read it i think the reason he's not crying is because he is hardened too much and everyone else is not hardened i don't think that he is moving forward when they are not i think he is i uh, think i disagree i think everyone else in that shop and everyone else in that office wouldn't be able to do what needed to be done now maybe that's because he's hardened. Well, I mean, I think he's a. I think what makes him spectacular is that he was this person who was this revolutionary who would point right. a cop, right? A cop's right, coffee, right, right, right? But and so he has that history. But I think he also just taught himself to make himself hard because he was just hurt so badly by the aftermath of their child dying and not being able to deal with that. Yeah, but at the same time, he's not. As cold a mess as he could have been. I mean, the scene right after that, those first few scenes, is him and Michael Caine laughing and yeah. talking, and so it's not like he's an anti-hero. No, no, no absolutely, he's not absolutely. An, no, that's well, that's. I think we might be saying the, the same, same thing. Yeah, probably. Um, I think <laughs> what, he's not an anti-hero, and he is. But but what I what I'm saying is, the first time I first several times I'd watched this, I'd always assume that's what he was, right? And it's less that, and it's and it's less that uh, he's a reluctant hero, and it's. I mean, he. the reasons he's reluctant isn't that he doesn't care anymore. It's that the reason he's reluctant is that it's hard for him to admit that he cares. Oh, I agree with that. What it would be for anybody in that time. Um, but I think – I do think that key moment, and for lack of a better yeah. phrase, when he sees and then knows the importance of the situation, I think we are supposed to think that he acts differently than other people would. Yeah. Other people would panic as some other people do. Other people in this in the same group grab guns, gr- try to make a, something of it from them, for themselves. I think he's a little different. I think. Well, I think, I mean, I think that's part of the message of the film is that, uh, to continue, sorry, like people are inherently good until ideologies right. get in the way and gain. I think the idea is that he is untouched by, I mean, obviously, you know, he, he realizes that humans should be treated like humans, that sort of thing. But he is uninterested in politics. He just wants the truth. He just wants to do the right thing. He wants to make it public. Yeah. And he's not interested in what kind of a PR move it would be to make right. that public. He's interested in doing the right thing by the human race, which is to let them know. Right. So, and, and but also he's just very human. I mean, it's almost a diehard homage where he doesn't get shoes until the very, like he loses his shoes. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, he gets frustrated and angry and he's not, 
a superhero. He's not a super action star. It's a great performance. Um, too. He's clearly scared out of his mind yeah. when he's running after Key. And, and the, the crying in the woods after after yeah. the car scene, which is a touch that a not a lot, a lot of other directors would have taken. Yeah. Hey, we're going to take our hero and give him a breakdown moment yeah. this early in the film. It's to humanize him even more than he, I think he already is at that point. But to you've just seen this incredible sequence, one of the most remarkable sequences of the decade, in my opinion. I'm on the, uh, like that to me is the one where uh, speaking of speaking of moments where it feels less realistic, just the way the camera moves around the car, it feels more show offy than oh. a lot of the like than say the final assault on the refugee camp and stuff like uh, that's pretty show offy too. But but that's but that is just a character that's that is just a character traversing through yeah. a dangerous space. Whereas a, the camera moving three hundred and, and then moving out of the car, fine. Like I, to me, that but it takes so long to move out of the car, and the idea that we're trapped in this car with these people while this is going on with no edits, with no cuts, no, it's, with no it's, external it's, it's shots. Effective. I'm just saying. It, I remember in the theater. I mean, I don't know if you saw it in the theater. I remember in the theater being like rocking back and forth yeah. during that sequence. And at a time, and maybe you, we talked about this earlier, how you're kind of disenfranchised and uninterested in action movies to have that kind of visceral response I had oh, yeah. to that sequence was breathtaking. When well, I saw like, it it's theater. just, I mean, part of that is just the way that, uh, Julian Moore's character is oh, yeah, yeah. Killed, like that, where it's, it, it's just sudden. It just happens. She's just alive. Yep. And she's not alive. And there's a ringing in. Yes, yeah, I know. It's a, it's an amazing, it's an amazing movie. It's yeah. a great film. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, trying to think of anything else. To I don't really... know if we can top that. I mean, let's end with the best sequence in Children of Man. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I would, we're all excited again, for gravity. The assault on, uh, children. I think the assault on refugees. Oh yeah. You like that more. better. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's um, great. It's a great movie all around. It's a funny movie too. That's the other, that's the other thing I forget. And then yeah. I watch it and then I'm like, oh, that's right. Sid. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, Fuji face. I don't. I don't want to keep talking about something no one can yeah. watch, but Believe's got that nice little like through line. There's a joke every once in a while that doesn't feel right, that doesn't feel like it would normally be there. That yeah. sense of humor that Cuaron clearly has. Yeah, where it's it's a very it's it's not jokey. Like there's right. not jokes. It's usually a, it's, it's just, an aside, yeah. a, a sarcastic aside here and there, and yeah, just yeah, little touches of irony and stuff. Yeah, is Clive Owen been that good in anything else? Because I remember seeing Children of Men and thinking like, oh, Clive Owen is one of the greatest. I think ever. He's always good. You don't think he's always good? Uh, not maybe not that good because it's probably his best performance. Well, I mean, again, it's just the the fact that he's working with Kiran who gives him a character that's so good. But like, well, the stuff he's great in now, other... no one sees. I mean, yeah, he was like, in a what? movie called Trust, mm-hmm. uh, where he played the father of a girl who was sexually assaulted, and he was fantastic. Like, was one he? of his best. Performances. Oh, yeah. I think what I'm comparing him to is Closer. I don't think he's very good in Closer. No, he's not. Uh, Croupier, which is before Children of Men, he's fantastic in that. That's mm-hmm. his first film, his breakthrough film. It's a spy type thriller thing okay. he's really good in that um and he's in a movie now an ira thriller called shadow dancer from james marsh who did one of the red riding movies oh, Man okay. on wire he's really good in that so when he's like i guess the question is what kind of mainstream stuff has he done lately i'm trying to think of anything duplicity with uh <laughs> julia roberts well that's a good four or five years ago now four years uh and i thought he was okay in that what, the international oh that was awful yeah. yeah, he was awful in that too. But uh, the smaller stuff he does, trust, seek out trust. That might be his best one. Yeah. Uh, Shadow Dancer. Is that the is one that was now. directed by David Schwimmer? It was, yeah. and it's quite good. Okay, yeah, Jim has talked about this on the podcast. It's quite before. good. Yeah, he's great in that. I just, he's one of those actors that even international, which is a piece of junk, he's not bad in it. I think he's always good. Yeah, sometimes great, oh. except maybe closer. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a fan of closer. I'm not. Yeah, me neither. Um, did you want to talk about Little Princess at all? Or I haven't seen it in years. That's I remember another, liking another, it. That's another tick in. It's uh, a good one. There's another tick in Alfonso Cuarón's sort of global-minded movie. Where yeah. It's a uh, natural world again, too. I remember lots of nature scenes mm-hmm. in Little Princess. He loves the forest. Yeah. He always, in all of his movies. And the roads and travel. He likes being outside. I'm glad he's able to do what he... Like, he's able to do things. And, like, Gravity Gravity could not have been an easy sell. No. I mean, that, that movie's been in production for a while. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was supposed to come out at the end of last year. Uh, but they were still working on it. Was uh, Children of Men a, a, a flop? Did that... Was it didn't a- do great domestically when it came out. Mm-hmm. No, not at all. It's had a huge life over the years. Right. Like DVD and Blu-ray and um, and people adore that movie. Yeah. I mean, well, it's generally loved. If you look at like, go to IMDb and look at like my favorite movies list, it's on like everybody's. Yeah. Um, so it's had a life since then. And he's just been, I don't know what he's been doing. It's, I mean, by the time Gravity comes out, it'll have been seven years. Mm-hmm. That's a long time in today's market. Um but he'll have gravity. He'll have this TV show, and then maybe something else quickly. You never know. It'll be like Malik took a ton of time off, and now it's like every other year. <laughs> so you know, you never know how these things work. I'm I'm all for you know. I like the Robert Altman, Woody Allen types who will just keep doing and experimenting and doing you know different things. But I am all for directors just doing what they want to do and taking yeah. their time until they're able to do it. Well, you've got the extremes. You've got. Kubrick and P.T. Anderson and even Tarantino hasn't made that many movies considering how long he's been around. Right. I mean, Tarantino keeps talking about he's going to stop at 10. Yeah. Because so, uh, that's what he thinks he should do. Uh, and then, you, then you've then you got the Allens. But the problem with the Allens is like one out of four might be worthwhile. Like, I, I, Yeah. Like, well, I mean, <laughs> Allen is, is sort of on the whole. I mean, this I would say this is actually more true of Altman where it's just on the whole, the, the, the so many different ways that Altman has – has uh, slightly altered his very, uh, you know, his very particular style. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, this one is Ocean Stiggs. And that is, what would an Altman movie look like if it was a Mad Magazine kind right. of comedy? And then it's right. like, well, this one is a Western. Well, this one is, like, Altman is always fascinating just because even if the movies don't end up being super interesting, um, it's just, as a whole, the way that he, you know, keeps subverting his own... And Alan was more like that in the 70s and 80s. I was going to say, Alan definitely had some of that. He's gotten lazier. There's a, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, he's definitely just sort of, yeah. He's, he's, he's made some movies lately that are just unbelievably I don't, lazy. I don't watch whatever. Woody, I don't works. watch modern Woody. I mean, I will eventually, but I mean, I've seen everything he made in the you know 70s and 80s and stuff, but I don't, I don't I, make it a point to watch. I would argue that Altman got a little lazy near the end with a few of them. Uh, Cookie's Fortune and, um, oh, I don't like Dr. T very much. But yeah. but in in his prime, yeah, there was nothing. Even out, I mean, his I would say his prime is his seventies, but in the eighties, he did a lot of weird, interesting things too. Popeye. That it's like this is <laughs> this is a weird thing for Robert Altman to be doing. Popeye, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I always go back to I'm a Nashville three women. Well, then you got the resurgence with the player and shortcuts in the nineties too. Yeah. so he had tons of interesting periods. Alan's the same way. The ones who make one every year. We'll have periods where they come back. Like you've got Matchpoint, Vicky Christina recently, and Midnight in Paris even. But then you've also mixed in there. Got I think a lot of people forget how experimental Alan – because like, Alan – because again, Woody Allen is – a Woody Allen movie is such a specific thing. Now. But, but in, it wasn't always. In the – but yeah, he would he would do weird – like uh, like he'd do like Shadows and Fog where he's like, oh, oh yeah, this yeah. is what a Woody Allen movie looks like if it's a German expressionist yeah, film. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. he did like 
Uh, you know, Stardust Memories is like, oh, that's a that's a Fellini movie, that's and some of those would work. Yeah. Like Purple Rose is certainly a unique yeah, experiment absolutely. on his part. Uh, Zelig, yeah. Um, you're right. I wish he would experiment more now. He doesn't really. I'm I, trying to I think prefer, of the last experimental. I one. prefer that sort of thing. Yeah. I e- I prefer either a filmmaker ha- know what they want to do, and if they can't do it, they just will not work until they do something else. Like yeah. I, I prefer the Shane Carruth sort of, well, I had this idea of topiary and I worked really hard to get it made. I couldn't get it made the way I wanted it to get made. So I didn't make another film until I had something else I really wanted to get made. Instead Anderson. of like Shane Carruth for sure got offered all sorts of Hollywood jobs that he could have just taken on, you know? And, sure. and I, you know, like I, you, you go see, I mean, I'm, I'm probably like source code less than most people. But I, like source code just feels like oh that was that was Duncan Jones just sort of you know just sort of throwing one off. But he made it his own. I like source code a lot. I, I I'm not a fan I'm of source code, but it's certainly not code. Moon. It was a it was a director for hire gig for yeah. sure. But then he turned it into his own film. Yeah. I think source code totally works. So yeah, either the either the but I know what you mean. The, uh... I know what you mean. Yeah, the people like P.T. Anderson who yeah. will just do what they want to do or Tarantino. Tarantino's never been a director for hire. Right. So, and except on television, but even that, you get right. a feeling like that hits his terms. Like, right, exactly. He didn't do it. And it was for he, fun. Yeah. yeah or Edgar Wright. Edgar Wright does what he wants to do, mm-hmm. makes his own movies. Um, you're right. And, but it's, so, of course, we're kind of getting off point here. I mean, Woody Allen certainly makes his own movies too. I just think he's at a point where he doesn't experiment anymore. Right. And so he's just going to churn out the same thing year after year. Oh, yeah. Although he did. He got a kick in the pants creatively when he went to Europe, when he left New York with yeah. Matchpoint and Vicky Cristina and stuff like that. But I even can't then, imagine another similar kick in the pants happening. No, maybe not. Um, but you're you're right. There's that. There is that. Uh, yeah, match that Matchpoint and Vicky Cristina Barcelona are both really good. Yeah, I agree. Oh, and um, yeah, I, 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 I'm sure I've mentioned this a hundred times on this podcast, but it always cracks me up that. He cast Scarlett Johansson in uh, in Matchpoint because he loved her in Ghost World, and the idea of Woody Allen watching Ghost World just like explodes my head. Like, <laughs> I'm sure. Like what? How? Like would he have any frame of reference for what Ghost World is even? Like, uh, like obviously the the Steve Buscemi character, but just yeah. the idea of like the hipster like twenty something year old girl. Who's I really like, like Ghost World, and I think it, I do think there's some things in there that might be more accessible than you think. Yeah, because it's about youthful alienation and uh it does it fits for any time for any generation I guess, yeah i guess that's true i mean Al, woody allen knows youthful youthful alienation he knows being feeling like the other well and he knows alienation yeah. but he started making movies when he's like 40 <laughs> that's true that's true <laughs> um so yeah um we went on a lot of tangents but well, that's it worked. good yeah uh, it's it's good this was a good episode i'm glad i i like the format of this episode sure this format definitely fit this uh just the two of us with out kiran who uh, I think we we talked to this about this more before we started recording, but Kieran uh, undoubtedly an amazing filmmaker, but his films are very kind of direct and simple. So right, yeah, I think we touched on a few things that I hadn't even really thought about, like his sentimental streak and some other things that you raised. So I like that. I like that we we didn't plan I mean, this in to, any way. We just another, worked around another Altman. Compare it like you know the the reason I love Altman is because he's so like his humanist nature just like. Just shines through everything. Like every yeah. one of his movies, just feel. I mean, uh, maybe not necessarily the player or something that's yeah. nasty, but like or shortcuts even. Um, but yeah, I, I think Curon actually has a lot of the same tone of yeah. Altman of this sort of. I mean, Altman would also do long shots, but I mean, he would he would do long shots as in long takes, but he also do like long yeah yeah shots far away. But 
Uh, also, there's this sort of flippant, uh, not necessarily uh, political or, um, but like this sort of just flippant left wing kind of feeling where like Kieran's going to make this movie and it's going to be about the pl- it's going to be about two teenagers having sex with this older woman and also about the plight right. of the the changing country the yeah. upper class in Mexico like the subversion of genre Alman would do that yeah. all the time yeah, yeah. here's a simple story about country singers but there's way more going on than that mm-hmm. um or even the player in shortcuts there's way more going on than just a simple little mystery or yeah what he's going with doing with his character so yeah they have that in common but i would I mean, I don't want to get too deep into this, but I would argue that most of the great filmmakers worked on multiple levels. Like almost anyone we can think well, of. Well, it's, it's led, but I'm, I'm, yes, I'm talking specifically more that Altman is very reactionary, political. Um, you know, like Mash is a very anti, you know, Vietnam. Like a lot sure. of his movies are anti. You know, Mash is very anti Vietnam. Uh, uh, Brewster McCloud is very anti-authority. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, McCabe, Mrs. Miller is very anti-capitalism. Like, yeah, yeah, and I think. And again, I imagine this probably won't show up as much in Gravity, but I think Huron's films are very reactionary to the politics, even if the plot isn't necessarily about politics. I agree. And that's That specifically is how I would connect the two. I agree. Oh, that's a good point. So, but, I'm, I'm waiting for the government intrusion plot line in Gravity. Yeah. Whether they won't pay to bring him back oh, from yeah. space. <laughs> We'll see what happens. Or what if there's just narration where it just explains where the meteors came from? <laughs> yeah, just random sh- uh, shots of narration or, or bits of narration from someone else. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we haven't seen Gravity yet. It could be anything. It could be anything. All we know about Gravity is that it takes place in space and that there's a le- quote-unquote legendary, like, how long was that one tracking shot? I like, don't know. It's 30 insane. minutes or something. Yeah. yeah. I've heard it's insane. Like, just Quaron trying to top himself. Um mm-hmm. Well, when Believe opened with a long tracking shot, I just started laughing. I was like, I just can't <laughs> believe it. Like, and it's got tons of them. Like, it's most TV nowadays is worse than Michael Bay. Most TV is snap, yeah, cut, yeah. cut, 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 cut. So just seeing a show with Quaron level takes is pretty interesting. Yeah, that was actually uh, one of the, <laughs> going back and watching Twin Peaks. That was the other thing where, like, he, he took his time. Lynch would just hold on something. Yeah, he took his time, big time. I love Twin Peaks. Oh, it's a great show. Um, because and that's one of the reasons I, I just watched a little bit of it the other day when I noticed it was in Netflix. And uh, yeah, he took his time. And no, most people nowadays. I mean, Chase the, took his time with Sopranos. Just the opening sure. theme song of Twin Peaks is the oh. least like oh, goes on forever. Hook, how do you hook audiences to this show? It goes on like, forever. <laughs> and it's the ever. slowest, yeah. just shots of machinery. And yeah, shots of machinery. And this like, like people are what is this a PBS documentary? Right. Like what the hell? And this am I beautiful like, theme that still is going to put people to sleep. Yeah, it's like. Oh my god! It's and, but it sets you in the right mood. I know. I, uh, love it. I I am all for uh, I'm all for television shows that have a strong sense of style because yeah. that, that seems for a long time was anti, anti, uh, antithetical to television. I'm I'm all for I, mean, I do a lot of TV too. What we've talked about a little bit authorship, the idea yeah. that Quaron did this or that David Chase's. I feel like you get a lot more of that in like British television. Uh, yeah, I mean, you certainly the guys behind the Doctor Who reboot you do, and but there's a lot of British television that's pretty. I guess, standard. I guess, I guess. Also, I've only watched the, cream, uh, the crop of yeah, British probably. television. I've seen a lot. I mean, some of it's good, but you're right. There's there's a lot of room for creativity mm-hmm. in British television, that's for sure. But I think what we're getting that a lot of, in TV now is on cable. I mean, Vince Gilligan. Yeah is not being told what to do for Breaking yeah. Bad, and David Chase was never told what to do for Sopranos. You've got Milch, who 
put his voice all over Deadwood, stuff like that. I, I always respond well to a cre- the vision of a creator being – you can see it in the work. So do you like, uh, do you like Newsroom? Uh, that's a strong. That's a strong example. The answer to that is no, yeah. and and yes, that's a good example of you can definitely tell the thing. And dude, there's a David E. Kelly show. That's another one uh, with Robin Williams and Sarah Michelle Gellar coming on this fall. Oh, really? It's just horrendous. Is it a HBO show? CBS, believe CBS, it or not. Robin CBS, Williams. Robin Williams, Sarah Michelle Gellar. Uh, it's called The Crazy Ones. It's David E. Kelly, uh, who's got that kind of rapid-fire Sorkin thing. So imagine that rapid-fire quirky sensibility with Robin Williams, who's already rapid-fire. Oh, it's like – I compared it – I said to someone, it's like being trapped in a green room with Robin Williams before he's supposed to go on, and he's just going through bits <laughs> with you over and over again. Really? Yeah. Uh, did, you get a, did you get a chance to see the Michael J. Fox Not yet. pilot? I have it. I'm my, working that, my way. I want to see it. that pilot looked amazing. Yeah. I, I might even watch that. Tonight, I'm working my way through everything. I haven't had a chance. I was, yeah, I, it looks interesting. I, I was really taken aback, like because the Michael J. Fox, you know, using his Parkinson's for comedy, like that was on Curb Your Enthusiasm. That's it was. That's, oh, well, he was so good on yeah, Curb Your yeah, Enthusiasm. Yeah, he was good, but like, but that also just seemed like the writing on on just from that trailer just seemed super sharp. Yeah, like now it's I, not just like that gimmick. It's I know people have seen it who f- who feel very positively about it. So, so I'm, I'm excited I'm about in watching it. To not that I I don't even God, he was so good on Curb. Get, I don't even. I don't have a, a cable box or like a converter or anything, so I don't get any television oh, actually wow. uh, in my house. So I, I, and I also wish there was a better freight because I have a television. I just don't get television. <laughs> you All know right. what I mean? You watch movies. And there's stuff, not right? a, there's not a good phrase for that. Uh, yeah. Well, the phrase is going to go away. Yeah. You, you can watch any show we've talked about on the laptop that's in front of you right there now. There you go. No. So, uh, you can watch more TV on your laptop than your television. That's for sure. <laughs> um, Oh, I I could have I guess I could have for what we watched I could have talked about Arrested Development, but that would have been kind of sad. I don't want to get into a fight with you. I don't like it. I don't want to get into a fight. Okay. Don't want to get into a fight. Okay, so you do like it. I do. All right, cool. Good for you. Uh, <laughs> as, as long as you're comfortable being wrong, we can just move on. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're 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 right. It is, it's it's very brave of Mitch Horowitz to take his ensemble comedy and then he goes, eh, "Well, what do we need an ensemble for?" And then to slow down the pace, and then to edit it weird, and then have some of the people come back and not. Really and, and, and instead of just giving people exactly what they expected, <laughs> he completely effed with the format of television as a whole, creating something that's a, more akin to Cloud Atlas than a typical season of television. The way it wraps back in on itself over I'm, and over again. I'm an admirer it is of his ambitious ex- as hell. Yes. Does it always work? No. Some of it does not work. Some of it is not very funny. Guess what? Some of season three is not very funny either. I'll go on record and saying that. Are you one of the people who don't like the Rita? I do not. Yeah. I I think a lot of the Mr. F stuff isn't very good. Yeah. Uh, And so if the idea is that we all expected season one again, which nothing on TV has been as good as season one since season one of Rest Development. I think season two is the best. Oh, well, okay. Whatever. The first two. No, I got you. So the idea of expectation and that we wanted him to give us exactly what we were hoping this typical format he completely effed with people's expectations and as someone who watches has seen every single tv show for the last 15 years someone who messes with audience expectations even when they don't have to so you're saying that your your standards have been systematically lowered by television no i'm saying (laughs) i'm saying everyone wanted a fastball down the middle and he threw a curveball and god bless him yeah that's what I'm saying. I think he beamed the player. <laughs> All right. Um, thank you. Thank you, though, Brian, for coming over. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I think 
Yeah, no, this was, this was fun, and it was. I think this is actually a very different episode. I of, like it of the podcast than where you normally used to. I like uh, it. It's a lot less uh, structured because we don't have Taskmaster Jim Duh. telling me who needs him, what to do. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but thank you for coming over. Um, yeah, anytime. Uh, once again, you can uh, be read on HollywoodChicago.com, About.com. I'm on WGN Radio every Saturday at uh, 9 a.m. on Bill Mahler's show, and I am all over the internet. Mm-hmm. Follow me on Twitter, Brian underscore Tellerico, T-A-L-L-E-R-I-C-O. I'm in Critic Wire. I'm uh, in Letterboxd. I'm all over the place. Awesome. And I, uh, I'm on Twitter at Patrick Rapal. Um you can uh, read my uh, viewing journal at Martha Marcy Nash and Young dot uh, Yes, WordPress. Um, you know, you can find us on the site directorsclubpodcast.com. I've been doing a lot more, um, you know, little posts on the blog posts on the site. Uh, you send us an email. Tell us what you think of the show. Um, directorsclubpodcast at gmail uh, Of course, leave us iTunes uh, reviews and ratings, um, and uh, follow. The show on Twitter at dcpodcast.com. And that's uh that's about it. Um so yeah, thanks again for coming on. Anytime. And uh next episode, uh we're gonna be talking about Roman Polanski <gasps> uh with special guest Andrew J. Ja- yeah, you're missing out. You got sandwiched Jesus. In between <laughs> I could talk about repulsion for days. Are you guys doing repulsion? Oh, we're doing repulsion. You're doing tenant? Uh I think we're doing Rosemary's baby and repulsion. Okay. okay. Um I love repulsion. It's so yeah. good. I'm, I'm really, Polanski is definitely one of those people who's like, I've seen Chinatown and Rosemary's Baby and <gasps> P.S., but like very little else. So I'm oh, super excited. God, cul-de-sac? To- don't miss cul-de-sac. Don't, like, do the smaller ones is what I'm yeah. trying to say. Don't just do Ghostwriter and Pianist. Do, um, do cul-de-sac. Do Knife in the Water. Hell, do Frantic. It's got some interesting stuff in it. Like, just do them all. I love Polanski. Mm-hmm. Except for, um, what's the Johnny Depp one? Uh, Ninth Gate. Ninth Gate. That's a yeah. big pile. What about Carnage? I'm okay with Carnage. I mean, it's not great. Yeah. It's, it's like some of these lesser Altman Allen films we talked yeah. about, but uh, but I like elements of it. I think it's okay. Um, I can't wait for his new one. He has a new one at Con. Yeah, I heard good things uh, about that. I Polanski's '70s stuff. I just bow at the altar. I think Repulsion and Tenet. That stuff's amazing. Well, I've, I've seen Repulsion compared to Martha Marcy, yeah. uh, May Marlene, and that's one of my favorite movies ever. So, dude, I compare things to Repulsion all the time. Yeah, like, something the <laughs> because <laughs> important touchstone. Well, yeah, you. because there are a lot, of, especially in today's current film climate, where everyone's scared of everything because of the current state of the world. Yeah. Paranoia is a common theme, and no one did paranoia better than Repulsion. It's that's awesome. Like, yeah. So, next uh, episode. Also, I hope I got that right. It's possible that we're doing other oh, movies. You're doing it now. Yeah. Just correct it. Okay. You still have time. Until then, uh, see you next time. Bye. The purple piper tune. The choir softly sing. Three in an ancient tongue. For the court of the crimson king.